We're back in the Austin studio after a few whirlwind trips and got the opportunity to sit down with Rick Doten. Rick is passionate about neurodivergence and about working with people and companies to help them understand what it is, how it's useful, how to hire for it, and how to best work with hiring managers if you yourself are neurodivergent. We discuss how childhood trauma and other types of trauma can manifest as apparent neurodivergence, the likelihood of anxiousness and depression as likely comorbidities of neurodivergence, and how future tech like AI might be able to help. And now, here is Rick Doten. Hello and welcome to the Arsenic Show. Today I have Rick Doten, how are you, sir? I'm great. Thank yeah. you for having me. Well, thanks for flying all the way from Charlotte, right? Yep, that's right. How was that flight? Oh, it was uneventful, which is how you want them. That's uh, that's my preference, yes. I just flew in from Munich, so I am exhausted. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> but uh, the good news is I think this is actually a pretty interesting topic, so I think you're going to keep me awake. Yep. Um, so the other fun little factoid here is that you are the CISO of a Fortune 25 which I did not realize it was anywhere near that big. Um, but we're not even here to talk about that. Nope. Which is the, uh, you'd think like, oh, of course you're going to talk about that. And, and we're not. Uh. Yep, I love doing this key, <laughs> keynote, Mark. Hey, and I don't have to talk about application security or cloud security. Isn't this great? And uh, yep, and I'm a uh, kind of a fractional CISO within. I'm part of the, the health plans and the subsidiaries. You know, we have a global CISO who... He knows that I get interviewed a lot and people just like to say, oh, the CISO of Centene. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, but yeah, just so that if Alan, you're listening, yes, um, <laughs> don't acknowledge that I am the global CISO. But, but, <laughs> even, but even as, as it is, like we're not talking about that anyway. Right. So it doesn't it's, matter it's, anyway. It's, it's really funny. Yep. <laughs> um, so maybe someday we'll come back and talk about that, but uh, not today. Um, so what we're actually here to talk about is uh, kind of, I would call it in a somewhat emerging way of thinking about how uh, certain groups of people act or are, um, and maybe you can refine what I'm just saying there and make it more palatable, but um, which is neurodivergence, which is sort of a cluster of things, not one thing per se. Yep. Um, and, um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of people talking about it. Frankly, I probably saw the word maybe four or 500 times before I had any clue what they were really talking about. Um, it just kind of, it's like, I am with no context, like I am neuro, right. neuro, neurodivergent or um, growing up around neurodivergent people, dot, 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 but never ex- with no explanation behind it. So I think this is an opportunity to, um, to get all of those nuggets out of you. But before we do all that, I think it's worth uh, getting a little bit of your backstory and sort of how we got, how did we get to the point where we're talking about this? Yeah. The reason why I started talking about this topic is really social media started talking about it more on TikTok, on reels. People, as you said, like have a neurodivergent TikTok. And there are a bunch of neuroscientists and psychologists who are bringing this topic up, talking about executive function and other aspects. While I was listening to those, I'm realizing like, I don't know anyone who's not that way. What are we talking about? And so then it made me start reflecting on the 25 years of management I've had for pen testers, forensics people, DBAs, you know, incident responders and all these people. And I had always said, wow, I would have told me that people I worked with were either all ADHD and somewhere on the spectrum to now be able to say, oh, they're all neurodivergent, which is kind of like what all of these are. You know, it's this rainbow of things from ASC, which is autistic spectrum condition, to ADHD, to OCD, to, you know, even Tourette's is on that spectrum of neurodivergency. And so anything where there is a specific change in your brain that's different than the average bear 
we kind of lump that into that. The ones that we talk about most, of course, are ASC and, and ADHD in those. But because I had grown up in the industry as you have, you know, being our age, like it really didn't exist in the 90s and started running pin test teams from the late 90s to late 2000s and creating forensics teams and creating what answer responses and creating what third-party risk assessments is and all these things, we were just figuring out as we were going along. Nowadays, it's a very well-organized and structured thing that people, and I was just talking to somebody today about it, can grow up specifically for one discipline. And I can go to school and I can be a pen tester or a answer responder or somebody who does policy and governance where we all had to do everything because we didn't know it was a thing. And then it all kind of like distributed from there. So it's as I was going through all of these different roles and having different staff working for me that I realized that we were all special and we had these gifts and some had real superpowers in it. And I was not able to articulate back in the day what, because we would always say it's like, oh, I hire for personality and aptitude, but not specifically what those are. And now, because of the learning I've been doing the last year, I can articulate those. Mm. And so how did you, I mean, it sounds like you've had kind of a, a background in it, not just, it's not just something like you're working with a bunch of people and those people have some thing about them. It, it seems like it, it came up much earlier for you. Like you, you've been thinking about this in some context for quite a, quite a bit longer than that even. Yeah. My mother is a psychologist. And so when I was a kid, she was going through her degrees. And so I felt like I have an honorary degree by sitting at the dining room table as she's going through all of these, these, uh, this education in college. And so I always thought about psychology a lot. And it also feeds into the ability, you know, neurodivergent abilities of pattern matching and looking for trends and looking for spatial relations and human and how humans behave. Mm -hmm. And so I was always the one in high school of my friends who would, um, be the one giving advice on things like, Hey, I'd be called in the middle of the night. It's like, Hey, this is happening. I have this girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever. And so I really liked psychology. So monitoring and in looking at human behavior was something I was always into in a video that I have on my YouTube channel where I did a keynote on this topic. I started with a story about my 16th birthday, getting my driver's license, signing up to get a job, and as a dishwasher, and then how my friend and I, who, you know, we went to school together, would quote Monty Python and be crazy about, you know, going and hyper focusing on certain things, and that everyone thought we were weird. And when he wasn't there, I didn't talk to anybody. So I recognized there was something different about me early on. And I've been observing that ever since. And what, what about you do you think is different? I mean, what, how, if you were to try to self-diagnose what would you how would you describe right. so when we look at when i talked about this before i finally do it started doing this more publicly i used to tell people i can now kind of classify folks as being on one side of being thriving in chaos being able to do multiple things at once run forward with little information fail quickly and figure out as you go along and so not everyone can do that and for us as pen testers as answer responders that's an important quality mm -hmm. because we don't know where we're going into and on the other side, people that are single-threaded, afraid to fail, meticulous about every step, and they don't take that first step until they know exactly what they're going to do all the way to the end. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. They make great forensics people. You know, 
used to drive me crazy when I'm sitting on a box. Or DBAs, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. When I'm sitting on a box and developers, I'm sitting on a box in a data center waiting for our drive to to, to copy for five hours and then go meticulous to find one little needle in a stack. That was driving me crazy. But there are people love that kind of rigor and that kind of discipline. You know, I'm more on the instant response side, right? I'm just like, what's this do? You know, how did this happen? Let's go find this. Oh, that didn't work. Let me do something else. So early on. So that would be ADHD side, you'd say? Not necessarily because they really blend, but yes, there is a traditional, when we get into, you know, ADHD, which is autistic and ADHD, which I certainly am, there is the, you know, autism side can either conflict or complement, you know, so the conflicting often is autism is you want structure, you want sameness, things, sameness, you want things that give you comfort. ADHD is novelty syncing, the explorer gene, I want something new all the time. And sometimes those conflict. You may be, I'm a very chatty person when engaged, but if I'm in a place and I'm not engaged, I am happy to be perfectly silent. And that's what I first talked about in that story when I was 16 years old is I would go days without talking to somebody at work until my friend showed up and then I'm excitingly. But while I was doing that, I was going back to the other thing we do, which is pattern matching. I was looking on more efficient ways to get the queuing theory of dishes through the dishwasher of this, you know, cafeteria style line. I worked at York Steakhouse and, and how like, okay, well we put things on the left and they should be on the right. And whenever there was a long line, I was the one that they put on the register to flush the queue because I knew how to get the change out quicker and do it all in my head a lot more efficiently. So we're always looking to do things more efficiently and better. Interesting. So, Okay, give me what you think the definition of neurodivergent is then. Is it is it really a just a cluster of anything that would put somebody outside of the mean or what what is what does it look like? So specifically it's change it's differences in the brain. So when we talk about ADHD for instance, it is there's more neuron according to the neuroscientists, there's more neurons in the brain and more firing going on. Now there also might be a disconnect between the front of the brain and the back of the brain. Back of the brain where memories and thoughts and things are stored front of the brain is executive function, the, the doing and the processing and setting priorities and getting things done. And so, you know, procrastination is a very common thing among ADHD or types and many other for different reasons, but that's an executive function deficiency in that, you know, I know what to do. I just can't get myself to do it. I know exactly the steps or I may not know the steps or I may know what to do, but I don't know the steps to do it. I can't think about that. And so these disconnects and the way the brain connected is what that means is your brain is connected in a different way than a neurotypical person. Gotcha. So there's a whole bunch of different things that I think might be that. Um, so for instance, what about dyslexia? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's on the list. You think it is on the yes, list? Yes, it's on. I have in my presentation, I have this wheel that I took from some neuroscientists that has all the things around and dyslexia. Yes, that is one of it. Okay. So I am definitely off the charts dyslexic, like mm-hmm. really, really bad. Yep. Um, and I would say in most situations that actually helps me, not hurts mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Um, except if I'm having to read, then it's terrible. <laughs> right. But I am very good at delegating. I know how to talk to people. I know how to get things done. Um, and I know how to structure things in my head in a way that makes it extremely easy to get things done quickly. I'm probably a faster programmer than almost any programmer I've met. Um, not a better programmer, just much, much faster. Yep. I can pump out code very, very rapidly. It's all hacked together code, right? Because I don't care. Usually the things I'm producing are one-time use, you know? <laughs> I right. don't really care about exactly. making it scale or whatever. Uh, a lot of prototypes. 
Um, so in that sense, I think it actually is a benefit, not a bad thing. And I've heard similar things that uh, if really highly dyslexic people, people end up being very um, highly placed in companies, for instance, because they're just, they're better off. They can delegate. They can talk their way through everything and they're better at getting other people to do their job for them. <laughs> but articulating that. Yes. Which is, which is curious, but also kind of fun. Um, but what about other, what, a, you know, you mentioned autism, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, are there other things that are kind of very common that may be less uh, obvious than like autism? Right. And just to be be clear, and I make sure I say this in all my presentations, like I'm not here to diagnose you. I'm not yeah, here yeah. To, for people to <laughs> self-diagnose themselves. I'm talking about traits that for me, as I've identified them over the years, I don't care how it got there. And Frank, and I, I say that because childhood trauma also looks a lot like some of these traits as well, mm-hmm. you know, particularly overpleasing, you know, being very OCD, wanting to control things, you know, those can also be representative of other things. Not here to diagnose, but mm-hmm. if you have certain things, so, you know, the, the wouldn't, main wouldn't ones- Wouldn't that just fit into the cluster? I mean, wouldn't that just be another- Not necessarily because you may be neurotypical, but because you have childhood trauma, the behavior you're demonstrating, you know, you know, they're, they're in, in some um, social situations, especially- you know, so some of the typical ones are obviously pattern matching. Um, you know, sometimes social things or awkwardness. Like initially, when I did the presentation, I said if you saw somebody that were socially awkward, couldn't look in the eye, and like didn't read cues, personal personal cues very well, what would you think? It's like, okay, great. Yes, you think they're autistic, and I was like, but the other end of the spectrum is me. Highly articulate, highly talkative, highly engaged, highly social. I'd mentioned I'm the social coordinator for my Charlotte CISO community. And so <laughs> the, you know, there is a cruise, range. Cruise director. Yes, cruise director. <laughs> and the um and that range is not like, you know, more or less autistic. So just kind of be clear on that. But so some of the other ones are things like you know, mostly people are very funny, you know, because you're very quick witted. You're someone who also has very, very close relationships or are very loyal to your friendships. One of the things I talk about in kind of, you know, I had talked with a, a group of young people in a, a year up um, uh, or, um, class at my local community college who were all underprivileged folks who were, you know, getting mentorship and internships and things. And, and I said, the important thing is to find your tribe. You know, being uh, like the story I had when I was 16, when I'm around the people that are like me and accept me and accept my weirdness, that I'm able to be myself because there is a, uh, a very high tendency to mask, which is, you know, people of different cultures in different cultures or people with, you know, um, may mask to like um, not be themselves to be in front of people. Neurodivergence are lots of time masking. Either I'm trying to be a social where I really don't want to be, or I'm, you know, trying to be talk slower, <laughs> or trying to look people in the eyes, like it's uncomfortable looking me eye. So, you know, I will do some other things to say, okay, is it okay to look people in the eye? Is it being creepy or whatever? So, so, so it is a mental, you, it is a strain, you actually have to think through it. Yes. And I kind of talk about how I struggled with it for years. And I started collecting eye color. And so mm. I would look at people and know what their eye color was. So 
I would be in a room full of people and I said, I tell you what everybody's eye color is because that's how I'm like, I'm looking to see what the eye color is. Oh, that's a good trick. Because I want to make sure that I am doing what's socially normal, which is looking did in you, the eye. Did you come up with that or did that, was that? No, something? that was again the novelty thing where I'm like, oh, well, that's interesting. Let me look at something else or looking at, you know, the prevalence of certain eye color and people with different eyes and how their irises are and yeah, all but these did, things. Is that something you came up with out of the blue or is that something you read somewhere? Oh, no, like, no. Yeah, no, I came up with that. That's a, that's yeah, a really it was just like trick. when I was, uh, when I was younger, it was like in, I think I was in college is when I started doing it because I started, you know, was with a couple of people that had very interesting eye color. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And I'm looking, I was staring at them because I'm looking at their interesting eye color. Mm. And then I started like, oh, I'm going to start doing that because then people seem to like it when I stare at them <laughs> and when I talk to them and not like I'm looking around like I'm trying to hide something. <laughs> interesting. So what about uh, bipolar, for instance? Mm. Um, that's one of those weird ones that... And that one, I don't know if it technically is. I'd have to like research it. But I kind of lump it in in that there is a, um, you know, there's certainly some chemical imbalance of it. And I, I have a couple of stories of good friends of mine, uh, my college roommate, and then a guy I worked with years ago who were that way and how I managed working with them. Yeah, and, I'd, I'd be and, curious. And so, how yeah. how they go down. Yeah, so I'll, 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 um, I'll tell you about that in a second. The, the, um, but the, the thing about... Um, that I wanted to kind of like touch on was I compare this to being left-handed and that I have a slide where I talk about how there's the, I found this graph of left-handed people from 1900 and then it goes down in the 1920s and then up in around the 1940s. And then it's been steady since about 1950 on. And I'm like, wow, a lot of left-handed people were born. It's like, no, my father who was born in 1940 is left-handed and he always told me even when I was a kid that he was one of the few people in his class that was allowed to be left-handed because they'd made you write with the right hand because it didn't smear the ink and the, the desks were set so it was for right-handed people and it was just like no no it'll make your life easier if you write right hand which obviously is wrong mm -hmm. <laughs> um uh, your left-handed people have it bad have it tough no matter what right. so what I'm uh, what I'm saying is like you know this is not something to be treated it is something to be kind of managed. And so going back to bipolar is a lot of times people mistake bipolar for either, um, you know, ADHD can be this and also borderline personality disorder where, you know, one day you are down the dumps, depressed, can't get out of bed. The next day you're manic and you're doing your thing. Bipolar is longer than that. It's like days or weeks or longer where you're one to the other. And I witnessed that first with my, my college roommate, who would just be like in a depression for like weeks and I couldn't get him out of bed. But then some days he's like, you know, for a while he's all productive and blah, blah, blah. And we go do all these different things. And so I told a story and I didn't correct it for bipolarism. I said, yeah, when I had my, my boss was bipolar because I was used to it. I'd walk in every morning, like, who are we dealing with today? I mean, I've just interact with him and say, Hey, what's up? How's it going? What are you doing? Everything. And if he's like grumpy and not doing anything, I'm like, okay, great. I'll leave you alone. I'm available. I'll let you do things. But if I come in and go, Hey, yeah, no, we're doing this thing. I was like, great. We're going to get stuff done today. And we would get like two weeks worth of work done in eight hours. Mm. It's just like hardcore, like work till 10 at night because he's productive and I'm going to focus on that. So it's little things like that where I'm like, all right, one of the, one of the tips that I give when a managing people uh, with this or yourself is manage energy over time. And so if, if you are up and productive in the morning, do all your important stuff in the morning. Mm -hmm. Or if you're going to go through laws, don't laws throughout the day, don't fight it. And so it's like when you're unproductive, someday you're going to wake up. And this is where 
like ADHD may have one day you're kind of like not motivated and can't anything done. I'm not going to get out of bed. I'm just going to, you know, scroll TikTok all day. And then the next day you're like really focused and get things done. There is a t-shirt that was from a joke that somebody had that I made for my presentation that says strengths works well under pressure weaknesses doesn't work any other way. (laughs) So, okay. I actually really like this idea of managing energy. Um, if you have somebody underneath you who you think is bipolar, I I really don't think they're going to be super well suited for anything like operational, but for let's say programming, that'd be somebody, it seems like you think they could be managed quite easily by managing when they're strong. Well, it also depends on the person and how long they've kind of managed it. You know, my college roommate, my college roommate self-medicated himself. He was an alcoholic. He smoked marijuana every single day and he did use ketamine. My mother, at the time and say like, yeah, you show me what addictions you have and I'll tell you what your mental illness is. Mm. And so, and he was so one to kick you up, one to put you down and one to mo- stabilize your mood. And so a lot of people with the ADHD use caffeine, energy drinks, because essentially that's what stim- stimulates, which ironically like gets your brain occupied so you can focus on things. It doesn't sound like it would work on paper, but it works. Um, the, my funny story is my brother who wasn't diagnosed with ADHD, he's five years older than I am until he was in his 40s. He said that he told me a story. He goes, now I remember when I was in high school in the late 70s and my friends and I, like, we all got some speed and we were taking speed. My friends are like, oh, wow, man, this is cool. And he's like, I've never been more clear and alert in my entire life. So that's why that's how Adderall works. Up exactly. Up. So the, and, and um, what's, what's the idea? It just it makes your brain so occupied that you're, you, that's the general sense. Again, I'd have to go look it up. I'm mm-hmm. not a psychologist, but, sure. but that was the thing. Cause I looked up to where I said, someone's going to ask me this. Right. And, um, but, it, but it, it does work that way. But, but so, like so going back to like the, the bipolar versus like ADHD, you know, it's the, how does the synchronization as you kind of said, um, going back about the success of people and, when I was doing the year up presentation to the the, 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 high, the college students, the woman who brought me in said, wow, it's, a, it's amazing that you're, you know, neurodivergent and yet you're so successful. And I'm like, I don't think you can be successful unless you're this way, you know? I mean, if you look back in history, there was a, uh, a paper that I referenced from University of York, UK, that went back tens of thousands of years. And they kind of said the words, you know, autism is a evolutionary advantage. And it's in, but it's a societal advantage where somebody 10,000 years ago watched how the sun went across like, hey, if we plant the crops here, this will happen. Or, hey, if we follow the animals this way, we're going to get this thing. Or, hey, if we build stuff this way, you know, pyramids, you know, you try things, you fail. You see the, the evolution of pyramids in Egypt and in Sudan. And it was like, oh, this works better. It's like these are people who were outliers in their community that helped evolve their society. And you look at every musician, Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, every inventor, Leonardo da Vinci, et cetera, every artist, Michelangelo, all the blah, blah, blah. Congratulations. All of them are autistic and neurodivergent in some way. Yeah, I'd have to imagine the, the people who came up with the original calendars like that, the amount of meticulous note taking to know exactly that you should see this comet across the sky like next week right and hyper focus that's the other thing is a hyper focus you know when when we talked about adhd in the 90s and and you know having kids in the 90s it was a you know typically that was when we really came up and that's one of the problems is that all of the research up until recently was done by middle class white boys young white boys 
because that's what we do. You know, we line them up outside and we give them Adderall before we're laying them in the classroom because we're trying to medicate that out of them. And we're trying to change the left-handedness, the right-handedness, so they would behave the way we want them to behave. And so, you know, which is not the way that they are. And, and so now, they're, so that's why we don't see women minorities getting diagnosed until later in life. Now, because of social media, we have ADHD talk, tech talk and autism TikTok, and we have some really great... Um, the, the really great influencers talking about there's a woman Paige Lyle who's a, a young woman who teaches autistic girls she was diagnosed early in life and so she really studied this and she says yeah psychologists use my videos because I know more about them you know you can point to DSM-5 and it has autism with a very specific number of questions and ADT specific number of questions and they're very outdated and there is no diagnosis of both which obviously is not true. Right. So it's out, you know, it's like 10 years old anyway, or maybe more. And so it's, we're now just within the last, I think, few years or five years, we're learning a lot more. And there are studies about it and we're talking about it and we're normalizing it. And there's not the stigma of like, oh, he's autistic. Out of curiosity, do you think that medication is a good idea or a bad idea? If you had a, if you had to pick one lane... It always, it depends. It's a security question, right? Well, <laughs> it's yeah, like, but, it's, so but it depends but on the person's... Had, if you had to pick, do you think it's naturally, do you think it's doing the right thing for kids these days? Or do you think that they, they should learn how to to be to manage and be managed right. in their natural state? It depends on the severity. If it's, you know, in, in substance abuse, we always say it's like, if it affects your life areas, right? You know, with like your ability to, with your, your relationships, your money, your health, your, you know whatever, you know, if, if it affects your life areas, then something needs to happen. And if therapy can't do it, then medication will. So it's the same kind of treatment that I would say would go for that. If it's something that you think that can be managed and, and you are in an environment, you know, we talk about managing energy. We both know people who are night owls and like they are in my college meeting was that way. He is most productive between 11 PM and 4 AM. I am a morning person. And so him, his views of success was like, Hey, my Goal of success of when I can sleep in until have a job where I can sleep till noon. Mm -hmm. So he was a musician. Sure. And, and so, you know, but if you wanted to be in a nine to five and put on a suit, then that may not be good, which is what we've been dealing with for a couple decades, right? Of like, well, we can't hire people because you HR and the business want them to be a certain way at a certain time and be productive a certain way. And it may vary. Interesting. So if you had to choose, though, uh, do you believe that most kids um, if, statistically would be better off without it, at least until they can learn how to deal with it without and then switch them on later on? Or do you think it's it really is 50-50? I, I, mean, I, I, really I really can't be pinned down on this because there's so many different variables in it. Because sometimes you may take a um, a, a, a stimulant medication like Adderall and it'll just make your heart race. And yes, you have ADHD and yes, you were diagnosed with it, but it just makes your heart race. And then they think, oh, well, is it not ADHD? And now it's childhood trauma and I need to look for that. I mean, there's so many different variables to it. It is, you know, I, I'm also like on the fence about whether one gets an official diagnosis or not. Like I'm not officially diagnosed, but my therapist says like, you know more about it than I do. So I believe what you say, <laughs> you know, and I just go to her <laughs> once a month for a checkup, which everyone I recommend doing. But, you know, we talk about this and, and I said, because there might be a benefit of getting the patch 
and saying, hey, now I get considerations. I can wear headphones if I'm overstimulated. That's one of the traits or understimulated that I need to have music on all the time because otherwise it quiets my mind, you know, or IAPs in schools and different considerations. You know, it is considered a, um, uh, you know, you get considerations at, at work if you if you have that. But for me, there are some people still have that stigma. It's like, I don't want to have the patch and people know that I'm this way. And a lot of people I talk to that, you know, I talk about this topic and they're like, oh, wow. It's like, I don't think I'm that bad. I'm thinking, I'm just like, yeah, you are. But if you don't want to admit it, that's fine. And, you know, based on social and other reasons. Um, but the, so to me, it's, what are your traits? It's such a gray area Then you're saying. There's right. Just, there's just too much. And, and so that's why I'm like, I don't care if you're diagnosed and if you have the patch or what it says. It's like, I want to understand how you think. And I want to send what motivates you. Or the single-threaded person, great. You can be the project manager. If you're multi-threaded, great. You can do this. That's what I want to know. And that's what, when talking to people and interviewing, that I want to get out of them so I know how to best manage them and make them successful. Okay. Something else I, I know you talked about before was comorbidities. Yes. Um, so what what is that what does that mean for diagnosis or what does it mean for their lives or managing them? You know right. what, what what is that? How does that? It's very common that um, people with neurodivergent or comorbidity with something like anxiety or depression. I think the number is forty percent for depression and 50% for anxiety. And that just makes your life tougher. So that might be something where if you have both ADHD and anxiety, medication probably a really good option because otherwise you'll start spinning. Because when you start thinking, you know, and when you start thinking like, oh my gosh, you can't believe I did that. And that's going to be a problem. And, you know, because we are generally very hard on ourselves. And then it's like, oh, what I'm going to do. And then, you get to the point where then the anxiety kicks in. It's like, well, but if this, I'm not going to be able to do this thing and no one's going to like me and if I fail this and I can't do this and I can't go back to jail and blah, blah, you know, whatever. You know, you just start spinning. Mm-hmm. And we all have the people who are just like, they start spinning and thinking of stuff. And you're like, oh my gosh, I need to calm them down, deescalate and redirect. And so, yes, those kind of things are one where you can, you know, treating the one, like, so maybe it's not that you need ADHD medicine, you need anxiety medicine to kind of like keep quell the spiral from happening or depression to like get you over the half. So your head's above water and you can like, okay, now I can see, and then I can deal with things separately. Yeah. I was, I was listening to another presentation on this uh, very similar topic and certain ADHD drugs can cause anxiety. Yes. So imagine you're battling anxiety and ADHD at the same time. How does that even Right. How does it even really work? And so it's kind of like you lean into like you have to experiment and you have to fail and you have to like go through 15 different drugs before you find the one that works for you is kind of the reality of it. And and that's where, okay, I would I would probably personally I'm leaning towards like less about medication, Mm -hmm. you know, just because there are so many complications is that it's really easy if you don't advocate for yourself about what I want and be able to say, hey, I was on this for two days, this is not working, try something else, and be persistent about that, then medication may not be successful for you because yeah. you'll be stuck with something that is worse. Yeah, but uh, to push back on that a little yep. bit, a lot of people are just not very self-aware. Yes. So especially in that early phase, you yep. know, they're not used to the drug, they're not, they're, they're uncomfortable with the diagnosis at all. And right. then you throw drugs in there and then you throw multiple drugs and multiple variants. You know, they could have just had a bad day that day. Maybe they ate some bad fish or you know whatever. It's not actually, 
you know, related to their stomach issues that they thought they had. And now they don't want this thing anymore, but it's totally unrelated. And there's so many variables in yeah. human's life that giving, giving full autonomy to somebody to make their own decisions about what's working and not working seems a little, I don't know, frankly, just dangerous. Um, yeah, I would. So, I don't, I don't totally disagree with that and that, that, that there are, but how you feel. And certainly these takes, you know, weeks before they're effective. And it's like, Hey, I'm not finding anything. Um, I'm kind of exaggerating the path, like after two days, you know, change it and that kind of thing. But if you don't feel better, then don't just accept that. I guess this is how I am now. Mm -hmm. I guess is all is what I really mean to say. Yeah, sure. But I remember a buddy of mine, this is a slightly different topic, but you'll see what I mean. He was on some drug and, um, and he's like, well, this drug absolutely does not work. Uh, it's never going to work. It's not doing anything for me. Uh, it was a weight loss drug. And he's like, okay, well, I, I'm over. I'm not going to take this, this stuff anymore. It's, it's horrible. And then he went back to his doctor like, I don't know, six months later for a, some other kind of checkup or whatever. And he's like, yeah, I, I got off that stuff. It sucks. He's like, no, no, no. That was the starter dose just to make sure you weren't allergic. Right. Like we haven't actually put you on the real yeah. dose yet. <clears throat> like, you know, so that... Well, communication is important as well. <laughs> yeah, with your I'm, provider. Yes. Yeah, I'm, but I'm just, you know, that, that's when you, the self-advocacy goes overboard and people are just like, you know, I, Fair know, enough. I know what my body's doing. I know what's not doing. And, right. You know. Yeah, that, so that's in the overconfidence thing. So what another trait that we have is, you know, harder on ourselves, not one who um, highlights certain things and never think are good enough because you're always trying to improve. And so what I tell, I have a lot of friends who are in staffing firms and I say, yeah, when you're interviewing a neurodivergent person, they're going to underplay their background. They're not going to exaggerate. They're not going to boast about themselves just because we never think we're good enough. And we always know there's someone smarter. So why am I going to say that? I'm not really an expert. I'm like, what are you talking about? Um, back when I was doing pen, running pen testers, it was 20 years ago, we'd interview people and we was like, oh, he's like, how good are you at in-maps? Like, oh, I'm a good. It's like, okay, well, if you're going to do a half open sin scan with double up from feeding from this file, that file output to this, what would the command line be? Put it on the whiteboard. And they would like struggle with it. And, and so I'm like, well, you said that you were like great at, at in-map. And then I'd ask one of my guys and it's like, hey, how are you going to mess? Like, yeah, I'm okay. It's like, if you do this, he goes, oh yeah, blah, 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 blah because they're underplaying. Right. So kind of, I said, looking for someone who is boastful and arrogant is kind of like, because, you know, is, and it obviously your mileage may vary and not everyone's, some people's personalities are different, but traditionally, you know, I find, and that's where we talk about when, when P, they, um, when they interview, it's very, very hard, you know, for lots of these reasons that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of people I've talked to think it's, these are sort of gotcha questions when I ask stuff like that. Um, but I don't think so at all. I think it's just me understanding where they really are. I remember I, I gave this, I had this one interview question I used to ask all the time, you know, what's the, uh, like, how do you make a, some, how do you make an HB request in Perl or something back right. when Perl was a real, was a, was a big thing. And the guy's like, oh, you could do it like this or whatever. Or, or it was something about CGI. Like, how do you, how do you, how do you like make a, a small CGI script to take some input or something. Very simple, right? You've written a hundred web apps or whatever. Just, just write one right here on the, you know, in front of me. And so he starts talking about using, C uh, I forget what it was now, maybe CGI PM or one of those. I can't remember. And I'm like, Oh, I'm surprised you chose that. Um, there's, there's other, there's other ones you could have chosen. Why that one specifically is like, Oh, I'm like, cause you know, there's some good things about it and bad things about it. There's quite a few bad things. It's like, he's like, yeah, He's like, well, in fairness, I wrote it like years ago. I'm like, oh, you wrote that? Never mind. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like I now, now I see why you chose it. Um, and so 
it was super helpful to, you know, he was kind of like, Oh, I don't, you know, I don't really feel comfortable doing this. And I'm like, just you do your, take your best shot at, you know, one of those, but he was clearly a genius, like right. you know, off the charts genius. You don't get that by just asking them, like, are you good? You have to actually yeah. test them a little bit. Right. Or kind of see what they react to. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, what you're talking about reminds me of the FizzBuzz test, right? Which kind of was needed because programmers did not know how to program green, right. you know, greenfield code. Right. Um, but, but so I talk about how one of the things that I found to do in the early 2000s, because I did not ever expect anyone to have done ethical hacking in 2002. So give me every resume of anyone who thinks they can do the job and I'll go through them. And what I found is that the people who, when I start asking questions, they're very short and very, you know, measured because they're not quite sure or they overthink it because they're like, what is he thinking? And I'm overanalyzing what they say and what do you mean this and what do you mean that? And, you know, again, kind of like that helps me understand where they are in some things. If someone is like, okay, we're on the right side of what I said of like going with little, moving forward with little information. They're like, I'm going to make an assumption. I'm going to answer that. And if I'm wrong, that's fine. I'll deviate as opposed to the single threaded type where we're like, overthink it. I would just, I'd be like, okay, obviously I'm not going to be able to get good answers. I'm going to start talking and I'm just going to talk about the things we do and the tools we use and stories we've done and cool things we do. And I'm going to see what you react to. Mm. And I know when I start talking about in map or core using, you know, core back when it was good, you know, back in the day and all the kind of stuff and they get excited. I'm like, okay, you know what I'm talking about? Or when I talk about certain things or use certain words and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, okay, great. They know what I'm talking about. But if they're like glazed over, I'm like, yeah, they have no idea what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And so I would do a lot just by how they react to it. And so the same kind of thing where that is a very interesting case where someone who is so knowledgeable about, but it's like a throwaway thing. Mm-hmm. It was like, yeah, I know this is kind of a silly thing to do for me to do, you know, cause I was writing, you know, compilers or whatever, you know, so <laughs> I'm like, you know, my brother wrote opera, my brother wrote operating systems. And so like, you know, it's not a, uh, you know, it was kind of realizing those things and kind of having this little dance of like, okay, how do I get you to reveal yourself and make you comfortable to do that? And in a very, objective, I'm going to ask you these questions on a panel and I'm going to ask you your answer. I'm going to rate you is just going to just completely make them miserable. So I ran into um, this one guy who had this idea for finding cryptographers. Mm-hmm. Um, basically he'd create these little crypto con- um, contests that you put online and uh, it just, you know, put it out to random like Reddit groups, let's say, or I don't know how he published this out, but basically just handed it to a whole bunch of people who he thought might be interested in it. And, um, and the only prize was that, uh, you were added to a list of people who are probably good cryptographers. That's really it. Um, and then somebody would come along and say, Hey, I need a really good crypto person. Like, well, I got like 10 right here. I mean, I've never talked to these people. I have no idea if they're sociable or what, but they are really good cryptographers. Like this is a very hard test and they did it for fun. Uh, and so, you know, and they had great successes, uh, out of yeah. hiring out of that kind of pool of people. Absolutely which is a totally different style of, of finding people than I think most people are used to. They, normal people just, <laughs> they want the resume, they want the, they want the phone interview, then they want to do the in phrase and like all that. But maybe, maybe that doesn't work at all for certain um, skills high, and roles, high functioning people in very specific roles. Well, and also it kind of limits the people who've, who've already advanced, right? You know, so there's the people who have the aptitude for it. I always say that, I get frustrated when people say, oh, we have 2 million C- you know, security openings. We can't find enough people. I'm like, they're out there. We're looking in the wrong place. And we're not giving the opportunity to the people who have the personality because they're intimidated by 
our industry. They didn't go to STEM school, a STEM school. They don't have, you know, they're not, never were good at math. And it's like, there's a rainbow of, of, of different roles mm -hmm. within our industry that takes every certain type of person and someone having the opportunity to be able to do that. What, what you were saying reminds me of the, I remember Manasano 10, 15 years ago, mm -hmm. they was like, Hey, you're yeah. going to do these tests and you go through the 10th level and yeah, make was, your, that was, that's okay. exactly what I was talking yeah. about. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> just like they're, they're, you know, we'll, we'll take all comers. And if you can get past, if you are hyper-focused enough to play around to get to the pat to the 10th level and make your own fuzzer to figure out this thing, then congratulations, you know, we'll hire you. I could give a crap where you've been, where you went to school, you could be a janitor. Now mm -hmm. I used to talk, there was a there is a, um, an aptitude test called CATA, C-A-T-A, uh, came out of University of Maryland. And around 2015, both the U.S. government and the U.K. government used it for cyber aptitude. And it kind of talks about if you think fast, think slow, you know, where you kind of fit in. So like I said, articulating the type of traits you are, not just, oh, you're the personality to be a pen tester. And the U.K., when they, they famously, and I've heard a couple other people sell the story as well, they famously said, all right, we'll take all comers, anyone who wants to come into... Um, GCHQ to be a cyber person, take the test, we'll take the top 25, put them through training, and you'll be an intern with us. And the first year, the top score was a janitor, and the next year it was a bartender. <laughs> and so it was like, this is like the, the you know, the, the equalizer. It was like, you couldn't, you may not have even grown up with a computer, but if you have the right mindset, that's easy to teach you. Mm -hmm. And so with that, what Manasano was doing was they were, you know, taking the people who already were like usable, like, hey, if you can make these things, I'll just point you at a problem and you already have the skills. But then there's a layer below that, that like, I could teach you this very quickly and you will be really good at it. You just didn't know this was a thing. So is there a particular set of jobs where you're like, the, this type of someone with autism or ADHD is just really, really like well-suited for? Is there like, like this particular job function? And you're like, I'd put him here. Oh yeah, I'm certainly pen testing and incident response are, so, are so, in that. So you say pen testing, but and to me, pen testing means two completely different things. One is the act of pen testing and the other is explaining a pen test, uh, selling it and explaining it, which are the beginning and end, right? So- Yep, nope, excellent, uh, excellent point. I was just talking to somebody about like the nuances of red team and pen test and adversarial emulation, but you're right. And so this is one of the stories I have on this particular topic. When I was running pen test teams, you know, 15, 20 years ago, you know, I had people who the bosses were saying, well, you know, Steve's gonna have to brief the customer. I'm like, no, he doesn't. I got other people that can do that. It was like, I want him to focus on his superpower and getting into things. And I don't even need him to write the report. I will have someone sit with him and say, Steve, what'd you do? Great. How did this happen? Great. And he'll explain it all to them. And he's comfortable with that person. And then someone can write the report and it'll be brilliant. And someone else can brief it and it will be brilliant. And so instead of making them not be left-handed and try to force them to do things that are uncomfortable to them, that they will not, you know, do not need to, for this role to be, to be, um, a successful. That's kind of where I think I had done a lot over the years of shielding people from that. If they wanted to increase, now they will not go to management. And I literally have friends my age who are still doing pen testing from when we were working together in 2000. Mm -hmm. And because that's what they want. They like the comfort. They like the sameness. They like just the same, doing the same thing as opposed to those who want to be more well-rounded and elevate and be a VP at a Fortune 25 company, then you do all these other things that make you more well-rounded. But it depends on what your goal is. And if they're perfectly happy solving this problem and breaking things and making good money and they got a good life balance, good for them. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. And places you wouldn't put them? Is it really just the customer facing component or? Because not necessarily, because I'm that way and uh-huh. I'm the face probably for every, for every, every place I've been. It comes back to what are the traits? And so you may have people that are very chatty that may not be as good at, you know, I'm obviously was not the best pen tester or else I wouldn't become the manager of it and the face guy to them all. But having been one, I certainly know how to scope one. I certainly know how to explain it to the customer. And I certainly know how to talk the customer down from the ledge when something goes wrong and they blame the pimp testers. I know you've been there. And because we know all the things, it's like, yeah, we didn't even touch that switch. Everything ever went perfect. What are you talking yeah. about? <laughs> we didn't even touch that switch. It's not our fault. And I can even have my guy look and show you what happened. It was a, it was an error that was in a configuration thing that you had had nothing to do with us but if it did then aren't you glad it broke while we were doing it you know what happened and not when no one was doing any looking at it mm-hmm. exactly um okay so at one point i think it was before we got in here you were talking about uh, hiring people and there are certain types of questions that are seem to elicit better better replies so you'll I guess not auto select them out, um, but other, otherwise potentially maybe even select them into certain roles. Could you could you dig into that a little bit? Right. So it's kind of what we were talking about is, you know, we struggle particularly in big companies with our talent acquisition process in our HR department because because we have, you know, it's to be this high to ride the ride. There's certain bands for certain pay grades. And, you know, this person who has no degree and two years experience, but it's brilliant, you know, they can't make the same as a director that's over here that's, you know, been in the business for 10 years or whatever. That's what we kind of struggle with. And, and so to try to be very objective for various reasons, whether you do contracting or government contracting and you must have specific requirements for customer, requirement, for, for customer needs, then, you know, you need to kind of have these measurements of this may use experience and, and degrees, et cetera, et cetera. So what we a lot of people are going to get very angry by that because they'll say well it's got to be a merit-based system otherwise how do you measure it objectively so right and what, so what, that's, what would you say to them yeah so so that's where i'm kind of leading to is that so yes there is a reason why that is the way and even though i don't like that reason and i don't want i don't care who comes in and i'm not hiring people for that you know that gets out of the way so more of just against the very objective and that I've been through and many of us been through of just like, we're going to ask the same questions that are not about who you are and how you think and what you do, but what your experiences have and nothing more than like what you already read on my resume. So moving away from that to the things that we were just talking about, talk about how do you handle certain situations? How do you feel about certain things? What makes you excited? But how do you ask that question in a, let's say a form um, where you're not actually getting FaceTime with this person? Is there a, Oh no, I would not do it like on a form, it would be like, you know, it it would be, there would be something that I would see in the person that they put in their background that would make me want to talk to them. And so just, you know, just like, let me talk to them for five minutes. I'll tell you if they can do the job. Interesting. Because a lot of people feel like they, that five minutes would turn them off. Like, I can't, I can't, I can't work with this person. Right. And, and it's not scalable and it's not repeatable. And I understand it's not the right way of doing it. And, oh, okay. And so I'm not well, saying maybe, this is the way, but this is how is I a, would do it. But, there's a, but, maybe, but maybe there is a way to extrapolate it because I feel like there's, there is this sort of the center section of the company. I don't know how to describe it exactly. It's not the very bottom. It's not the, the people interns and like that. That's not that. These are highly, highly skilled, extremely talented people but they're probably never going to get above manager. Let's say they might manage a team, but a small team, right? They're never going to get to like director and senior director and so on. Um, that we're just not hiring. We're just not getting them. And so 
we have all these chiefs on top, very few Indians, if any. Um, and we're just sort of hiring consultants to fill in the, the middle section because we don't, we can't find them. And I'm, I'm thinking maybe, there, point. maybe there is a scalable way. Maybe we just haven't like right. uncovered that. So the, there are two pro challenges. One is like, what is the career path? Because, and that is like principal architect, engineer, mm -hmm. fellow. Right. kind of thing yeah. the non the the individual contributor Which but they at a high level absolutely excel at right and so very big company have those programs and and go through and look at it you know when i was at lockheed 13 years ago we had fellows and senior fellows and here we have principals and senior principals and you know even fellows and so yeah so if you are not the i'm not a management type don't put me in front of people i'm just a technical person that's going to go solve problems great there is a track not all organizations have that track. So that's one challenge that you're bringing up, which I agree with. The other is kind of, how do you get those people into an organization at that level with, and it's an excellent point, is like we have to feed them in with the consultants or else they'll go be consultants where they get to do it all to different companies and different industries and find novelty and they may enjoy that kind of thing. But then there are some with that balance of like, I like sameness, I like comfort, I want to be in a company, you know, this side of the of, of the rainbow, you know, and, and I want that I kind of feel that way as I like the comfort of being in a very big company, and the structure and the teamwork and the central goal. You know, I've been a consultant, and I've been a CISO, and I've gone back and forth, and I've been a virtual CISO throughout my career. And, you know, I enjoy now being in a big company and having a team working towards a similar goal. But I also enjoy and think about being the virtual CISO and being like a grandparent, giving the kid back at the end of the weekend. Not my responsibility when there's a ransomware. I'm like, hey, I'll get to advise you, but it's not my responsibility. And I can just kind of help out as it goes. And so how do we get those people into the company is something that the company is going to need to kind of define a these certain roles that are attractive to people to come in, like a senior principal or, or, or whatever, um, distinguished engineer, the, whatever the, you know, and titles that are cool that they want to be in, that among themselves, that there is this, you know, hierarchy that they know of and be able to be proud to say, I'm a distinguished engineer. Um, and then with, with a pay grade to, to right, match. Exactly. Yeah. With the pay grade to match. And then be able to, so then it comes to, at that level, it's really more about your, you know, they're rarely coming in cold. It is a reference. It is, I saw this person here. They spoke at this thing. I heard about this team. I talked to them because I was on the plane next to them. It is kind of like this untraditional way of getting in. There might be something that attracts you. It's like, oh, this person is a thought leader that I need in my organization and be able to get in because it's really, really hard to just go in cold for like you or I to just send a resume. I was like, I want to be a fellow at I have, a big company. I haven't sent a resume out to get a job. Right. I maybe twenty plus years. I don't know. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, and then and then also it's like in my story and that is in twenty years I've I've always gone into the company in one role and created a role that did not exist that suited me to be able to do what was effective for yeah. them every single time, including here. Yeah. So so do you think there's some role in HR, like, do we need to start saying, okay, you have like 20 HR people, like one of you needs to be good at this very specific type of hire. Like, we're going to train this person to be good at asking these kinds of questions and analyzing them. Because I think most HR, you know, frankly, <laughs> almost I say 90 plus percent of the time are women. Uh, and they're expecting to talk to people who have the same sort of uh, 
interpersonal communication skills right. that they do. Yep. And these people absolutely do not. And it might be the first time they've talked to a woman, you know, yep. maybe ever. Good point. Yep. Um, and so they're nervous on top of being nervous. Um, and also, you know, not getting the right questions so they don't even know how to answer. So it's it's like this massive gap, I think, between the people who are taking that first line set of questions and then, you know, where where what you really need out of those people. So there's kind of like my way and then probably the right way, which is not my way because it's not scalable <laughs> and repeatable. <clears throat> what I always say is like, give me every resume of anyone who thinks they can do the job. Mm. But I'm also writing the job description. And... What I'm seeing, and I'd mentioned to you before we started that, you know, in my presentation that I've updated recently that I was looking at from the practitioner side, I was going to talk about tips of doing the interviewing. But then when I was looking on ninja jobs at different, uh, of different job openings, and I'm pulling like requirements, I'm like, oh, wow, they're really catering to that. And they're saying it, but these are with technical security, com technical security companies that know the kind of people that understand what we understand. And they're usually smaller organizations. Yeah. And so they can say, oh, someone who is great at solving problems and doing unique things and doing multiple things at once, et cetera, et cetera. And that's great. When you get to- Or the, or the uh, opposite, or right. the exact opposite. Right. And, and when you get to a big company, they want scalable and repeatable, right? And something that, you know, and so focus on, you write the job description for the things that you know will be the keywords that someone who knows will know. It's like, oh, they're looking for this. You know, like a developer is like, make sure you can pass with his buzz. And it was like, okay, I know what that is. And therefore I kind of like, you know, if someone's like, I've never heard of that, that's crazy. It's like, all right, well, you're not going to pass. Um, <laughs> but the, um, or certain, you know, so I would put in certain types of tools that are kind of, if you know, you know. And then when you get all the resumes and I may get a stack of 50 or 500 and just kind of go through them and you'll know looking at it because that pattern matching and knowing things. My favorite story that, that, that I love to this tell. This is not scalable, sir. <laughs> I know. That's why I'm saying what I'm saying, but not right, wow. particularly for a big thing. So yeah. so I'll tell you a story, then I'll, I'll okay. get to answer your question. Okay. You can tell you're talking to a neurodivergent <laughs> person because I'm going 50 <laughs> different directions, but I always come back. Yeah, I yeah. always know where I'm going. Yeah, it's like, just a lot of parentheses <laughs> within parentheses. <laughs> yes. I'll always get back to it. The It was 2002. I was in DC looking for pen testers. As I said, you know, didn't expect anyone to do it. Looking, I got every resume. I had 50 resumes. I said, just give me everybody. And the HR person, like, okay, great. And we're going through and everyone's got a normal background, you know, admin, network admin, Windows admin, Unix admin, et cetera. Finally get this guy who was working at EDS and it was a Solaris admin, my favorite Unix distribution. And then I'm like, turn over and on the back, like previous experience, Sword Fisherman, Gloucester, Massachusetts, 86, 87. I'm like, I want to talk to this guy. And she goes, why him? I was like, you see that? You ever watch a perfect storm? I wouldn't do that job. Like this guy's up for anything. He's afraid of nothing. I want to talk to him. And so now I can articulate 25, 20 years later, the old Simon Sinek, the, the Navy SEAL, mm -hmm. you know, trust over performance thing, mm -hmm. you know, high trust, medium performance. It's trust. I trust this guy. He'll get us back alive. Mm -hmm. That's all I care about. I can manage anything else if I know I can trust him. And I love doing that story in front of an audience where I get like a dozen people who are like, oh, and I'm like, you reacted, didn't you? Mm -hmm. You know why? I didn't know why. It's like, but you want to talk to him, right? It's like, it's trust. You see that and you're like, I trust them. 
Okay. Interesting. So those are like the little things because that's a hard skill to, I know I'm not scalable. <laughs> it's not repeatable. I'm just saying this is how I do it. So, so like, sword there may fisherman. be some, uh, <laughs> but I'm not saying this, <laughs> not looking at it, but there's other things in there. Like, you know, things that you do in your spare time, there might be something you did. Oh, you know, I worked at this thing. It's like, Holy crap, you worked at this thing. You know, it was like, it's just a throwaway thing. You don't think about, you know, you know what guys, that's what a producer does. Yeah. How so? We do, we're jack of all trades. We wear hats across the board, you know. I've done fisherman stuff. I've done climbing mountains. I've been in Cambodia. I've been to all these different places. But, you know, what you're describing is what producers do. And, you know, we have to wear many hats in order to be successful. We just have to. But I absolutely love this conversation. It reminds me of Goodwill Hunting a little bit, too. Yep, that would be another example of this. Yeah, and he, in that context, was very sociable, very sociable, but right. also so beyond everybody else um, right. that he actually couldn't understand really how to articulate it or or right. do two things at this, those two things at the same time. Yeah, my favorite quote is like when the the professor is just saying it's like there's only four people in the world that can tell the difference between you and me, mm-hmm. but because I'm one of them, it drives me crazy. Mm-hmm. And so that's a lot. I use that analogy a lot. It's like when I was a virtual CISO and I was helping a lot of companies hire CISOs, I'm like, there's not a lot of people can tell the difference between a good one and a bad one. And it's certainly not the CIO of some, you know, company sure. in, in, in Toronto that knows what a good one, a bad one is. And then we have this confidence bias that a lot of our peers have that make people think, Oh, I'm, he's very technical and he certainly understands it. It's like, Oh, okay. Which feeds right into the it mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, Nope, that's the worst person you need. You need this person. Um, so getting back to the, your thing about the, the, you know, who in HR would be able to do it. I think they understanding, and, and we have kind of trained and done talks with HR over the years about, you know, these are special people that have these traits that we talked about and that they are not going to respond the same way and they may not like look as good in certain things. And, and, I, and that's one of the reasons why I like, I have a lot of friends in Charlotte who are staffing or run staffing firms and I kind of help mentor them and they will sometimes say, hey, I have this resume of this person. It's like, does you think this person can do the job? I'm like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Say that she said this and this and this. Like, she's downplaying it because these are not things that people usually know about, mm-hmm. you know, or they worked at this part of the government or this part of this business and like, oh, these were top drawer folks. They would not have got that job if they didn't have it. And so that insight in supporting them, but you're right, not scalable. It's from years of experience of being able to know, you know, you know, if you, like when you see the you know, University of Phoenix, like, okay, you have an idea about that. <laughs> yeah. You know, there was a thing up in, in D.C. Um, uh, if you got your master's in computer science from Johns Hopkins, that didn't require a thesis. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, oh, okay. So they did the easy way out. You know, not saying that's not a bad education, sure. just saying that like, okay, because they were all the people who weren't good writers. Mm-hmm. I have a degree in English literature. I love writing. I'm happy to do it. Interesting. Yeah, I feel like there might be some way to like interact with like SHRM or one of those like advocacy groups for HR and just say, hey, look, there's this new way to do this or maybe even create a course to help them, you know, understand how to do this. Um, That's a good point. I actually keynoted an HRSRM event in like 2005 down in Virginia Beach. And I think I was just talking about cybersecurity and just telling cool stories about Mm -hmm. things we did Mm -hmm. and things that we've seen. But that was a missed opportunity. I think so. Well, maybe not there. Yeah. 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 I didn't uh, know anything then. (laughs) Well, no, but, but more importantly, you know, maybe a conference is not the right Avenue to do that type of training. Right. 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 Um, It seems like you'd need to, if you really want to scale this, if you really want to make it a thing, it seems like something that would need to be 
more or less accessible and really obvious to people who are right. in that role. Um, and more people are talking about Sam has their SANS has their neurodivergent conference and cyber minds talks about it. And other of my peers are talking about it. And the more that we can talk about why we're different and unique and quirky and how to best, you know, transition us deal challenges with transition. That's another trait um, of, you know, changing because there's a comfort and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, we're going to do this now. It's like, oh, wait, you didn't give me enough time to transition. I'm not comfortable with this. And, mm-hmm. and then things I used to always talk about, used to do the joke that when I ran DBAs, like you can't like change things on them because they're like, you have cats. You know, they're like cats. It's like you move the furniture, they're going to start peeing in the corner, asking crazy and hiding <laughs> under stuff. I'm like, yeah, they're the same way. If you change too much, people are not going to be productive. And I always looked at like, how do I make sure everyone's productive? And it's like, if you do this, they're not going to be productive for a couple of days and we have to recover from that. So let's, you know, keep things comfortable for them. Let them go. The, what, let them do what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe there is some way we could scale this a little bit better. It's, you know, maybe it's through uh, some white paper on the SHRM website or, you know, something on there. I think they have a, like a magazine or something, you know, and start getting, yeah, sure. getting more um, HR people aware of this problem and helping them tr- train them on, you know, very simple mm-hmm. tactics, you know, maybe the top 10 things you need to know to blah, 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 you know, click, make it super yeah. clickbaity and, you know, super interesting. Yeah. To them. Make a little TikTok and point to different parts of the screen <laughs> while I'm dancing. <laughs> are, are you a dancer? I don't know. Yes. I've seen your shoes. <laughs> yep. Uh, so th- maybe there's something in there. Um, I keep thinking that there would be some sort of training or something around this as well. You know, like, like uh, you have sort of a virtual person and like, what would this question work better or that kind of question? Like, you know, um, if you're hiring for this type of role, should you ask, be asking these tens of questions or these types of questions, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we're at, you know, day zero of now we're talking about this and other people in the industry are talking about it and we're recognizing that this is not, uh, something that's a negative thing. It's a positive. These people have superpowers and gifts and we want them to be productive. And we've been, you know, trying to make them something that they're not, which is making them less productive and less happy and happy people work better. And, and so I think that there, so I think that's a good idea. And it's like, where can we start from now to start thinking about what those are? I think just highlighting certain traits and giving them grace to be the way they are. You know, I told the story, um, recently that wasn't in my, my original keynote about, you know, I was you know, 15 years ago, I ran East Coast security practice um, for Verizon business and would review all my guys, you know, expense reports. And one of my friends was in New York for a week and I'm looking at expense reports like, dude, you got room service every single night. You never like, left your room. <laughs> you're not, you know, you're coming back and it's like, you're in the best food city in the country. And I'm like berating him for it, which now I'm like very upset of myself for doing that because I didn't give him the grace to think, oh, he's introverted. He used all of his energy during the day at the customer site being, you know, you know, happy, you know, being social and doing things and explaining stuff. And then he was just completely drained at the end of the day that he did not want he didn't have any energy to go out, find a place to eat, talk to anybody else, and he needed to comfort and re- rejuvenate himself. I'm going to get a cheeseburger and fries every single night. I'm going to watch the same thing. I'm going to listen to my same my, my, my favorite music, and I'm just going to like rebuild because i got to get ready for the next day because it's going to be very taxing on me. Mm-hmm. Where me being an extrovert, I'm just like, I get energy by being around people. And I did not 
you know, looking back, I apologize, Steve, you know, that, <laughs> that the, that I did not give him the grace to like, let him be himself. And uh, it's okay. I know that you need to manage your energy. And if you need to go back to your room, not leave. And even if you're in Paris or wherever, that's fine. Cause I just need you to get the work done and make everybody happy and be effective. Yeah. That are really likes those cheeseburgers. Right. <laughs> Could be a great cheeseburger. <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm thinking about this one time. There was this one QA guy that I ran into back when I was at eBay. And this guy was absolutely amazing. Like, it's just the best QA person I've ever run across. And he was finding early, early days of what we now think of as security flaws. But he was thinking them in the QA sense. Like, mm -hmm. if I put a negative number in, bad things happen. And I don't, you know, yep. they shouldn't do that. How and, to break stuff. Yep. <clears throat> but, like, very, very rudimentary early days. Um and, and he didn't know what he was doing, really. You know, he hadn't had the training on it yet. But he had the patience to test everything. And, and I just, I was always marveled at him in particular. Like, you would probably be one of the best pen testers in the world if you had that knowledge of that other stuff you could do with the same patience that you, you show and demonstrate on a daily basis on this. But does that patient also include the ability to fail quickly? I like, think so. You know, so if he could and, be and very patient and, and sustained and then fail quickly and be able to just keep going mm -hmm. because we know that's where pen testing goes. Well, that didn't work. Well, that didn't work. Well, that didn't work. Ooh, that gave me a little something. Oh, that didn't work. Or that, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and that's the difference in the tenacity, which is another trait, is the, the hyper-focus and stick to a problem until it's resolved. And when I was at Lockheed, they were doing a, a class for ECH, ECH, whatever the ethical hacking certification was. This was in 2010, right? And I'm like, you want to be in the class? No, I ran them for 10 years. I get it. But during lunch, it was like everyone was leaving. It's like, oh, we're having this little exercise, but like we all gave up on it and we went to lunch. I'm like, and that's why you're never going to be a pen tester. Mm -hmm. Because if I don't walk in the next morning and somebody's still up all night, it's like, Steve, did you forget to go home? It's like, oh, is it morning? Like, that's why you do this. Mm -hmm. Interesting. See, I need my sleep. If I don't have it, I die. <laughs> right. But that's the thing is your hyper-focus will then sacrifice your health and yeah. you're, you're, not, no, you're forgetting I, to eat, forgetting to sleep and all these things when you're solving a problem. Yeah. I actually have to time. I like, I know this project is going to take about 15 minutes and I know I have to urinate or whatever. I'm like, okay, well, I guess it's going to be 15 minutes. I'm just going to have to sit here because <laughs> you got to finish, right? You have to finish. Uh, so I, I definitely understand that. <clears throat> On the flip side, I think that uh, security industry, not that I really want to spend too much time on security with this particular topic, but it, I think there's some interesting analogs. We've, we have uh, the sort of the rock star mentality. We've brought in these people who, and I was definitely one of them early on, especially, <clears throat> we brought in these people who were hyper uh, personable, who could stand up on stage and, you know, talk about why companies are stupid and people are stupid and how I was able to, you know, hack them and, you know, get everyone up, you know, round a big round of applause at the end. It was, it was really the show of security. Um, and to some extent I look back on those days, you know, with a, a huge amount of like joy and like happiness that how much fun we had. And it was amazing. But <clears throat> the other half of me goes, wow, I bet there was a hundred amazing things I just never saw the light of day that people were just kind of diligently working behind the scenes and just it kind of happened. And, you know, was, they issued some like vulnerability report to the, the 20 companies who were affected and that was it. You know what I mean? It was just gone. And I, I'm kind of curious from your perspective, like how much do you think the sort of the culture of, um, of the show is impacting these people? That's an excellent question. And that's an excellent 
thing. I was thinking about, were we doing, because I was doing it at the same time as you, and I still do it, I guess, is are we doing enough? Was that doing any good? You know, it's like, are we reaching the people to make the change, to make them more secure? Because we're certainly not any more secure than we were 20 years ago. I have a whole other discussion about that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, but the, um, but the, but I think your point is that there are a bunch of people working behind these distinguished engineers that are quietly doing their thing and doing really good and identifying problems that people are fixing in patches that otherwise would have completely destroyed them that don't get out because they're not like us who want to be in front of a crowd and talk and are very personable. I, I think that that's kind of the design of the system, you know, is that you need the cogs that are doing the jobs that are happy to do the jobs that don't want to be in front of people that don't want the credit for it. They just know that they and the people who need to know, know that they did it. And, you know, one of my, one of my friends in, in Charlotte is very famous CIO from JP Morgan Chase, Austin Adams, you know, great guy. We, I, I moderate when he's going to do a presentation. I kind of like in his handler and do moderation and help and help us, um, you know, keep on task and, and, and feed him questions and stuff. And he has lots of great talks about leadership. And one of my favorite ones he said is like, praise people the way they want to be praised. Some people want a parade and a cake. Some people just like in the corner, like, put your arm around, hey, that was really great, I appreciate it, thanks. And so knowing how they wanna be praised and how they wanna be recognized is kind of one of those things. And so I think that, yes, it's a lot of fun and did we do good and and if you're saying it's like, do you think it's bad that we didn't like highlight those, you know, unsung heroes that were, that made these things happen, that we were just the mouthpiece and the face for, I think they would be probably perfectly happy Mm -hmm. and say, yeah, no, I would, rather you know do something very uncomfortable i was trying to think of an analogy of you know fingernails or something <laughs> then get up in front of a crowd and talk about this great thing that i did so on the flip side of that i remember i got this one email this one time and it's just stuck with me years and years has, has gone by and it's just stuck in my brain <clears throat> it was a it was a email from somebody i think in italy i'm not 100 sure and they were talking about the fact that um me being in the united states is basically a massive privilege because uh, I speak the language natively. I'm close by. It's easy for me to get to conferences. The people know me because we just kind of run into each other all the time because we're around, you know, the same sort of micro uh, conferences or whatever. <clears throat> He's like, I just, I'm not not getting the opportunities, um, you know, and I and I do amazing research, etc. I mean, he wasn't like being boastful. He was just saying like, this is super weird and unfair, and I, you know, I just I just lost the lottery basically. But then like extrapolating just a little bit beyond there, it's like, yes, and I'm sure there's probably a hundred more people just like, maybe the thousand more people just like that person who have all the skill and just aren't quite able to cross, you know, the language barrier is a kind of a two-pronged thing. One is being able to speak the language. The other one is to be able to speak it elegantly. And uh, if that's the case, what are we really talking about here? What are we optimizing for? Uh, you know, the your handle of the English language, your location, and your ability to you know look people in the eye, or effectively, you know, or whatever the that version of right to use uh, the right intonations or whatever. Right. Um, and I mean, I'm looking back and and just like all these opportunities to uh, so. One of the things we did at Black Hat is we said, okay, well, if you're not a non-native English speaker, speaker because this is stuck in me. Mm-hmm. This entire time, I'm like, okay, we gotta have some way to have somebody to ask them ahead of time. Are you a native English speaker? If you're not, it's not that you're. The answer is no. The answer is we need somebody to 
to to sit there with you and translate for you, mm-hmm. um, or at minimum to if you have a very heavy accent and people aren't going to understand, say okay, here's what he's this is what he's trying to say right now, um, and I feel like something like you were talking about moderating uh, with this uh, person asking the right questions. It feels like there needs to be somebody on stage to kind of prop this person up to explain what amazing things this person's talking about. They might be talking bits and bites, but it's like, okay, here's what the practical application of what they're talking about. This is why you should care. Uh, Kind of uh, crossing that barrier to make it, I don't know, uh, dumb it down, I guess is uh, kind of what I'm trying to say. No, I think that's a really good point. And uh, A, yes, I agree with you that that is true. And B, the, um, that, yeah, and it's more like just being the, I don't want to say not the comfort animal, the the support animal, right? Mm -hmm. It was like, okay, this person has a lot of stuff to say he is disadvantaged because of a language barrier. And, and let's just say maybe it's not a language barrier, but just like not one who can talk in front of people and be petrified. I'm going to just have a little chat with them and you're going to listen in on this chat because they're comfortable with me. Mm-hmm. Or I'm going to have a translator. You know, my friend Rick Howard, when he was at Palo Alto, he flew all over the world and he talked about when he'd be in, in Japan doing these presentations, he would have some Japanese woman as a translator who's like, instantly translating as and going as they go along That's it's a known thing yeah. and i've been those, in, those poor translators yeah. i speak very quickly <laughs> and then the <laughs> and and i've done i spent a lot of time in mexico and did conferences down there where they had the per, the women in the booth translating into the headsets while mm-hmm. we're talking it has been done and i've done for japanese one in the in in dc so yes i mean i think get them a translator and have them like tell their story but the difference is they want to do it and then the thousands that you're talking about don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. They just are knowledgeable and really good and happy doing their thing and don't need to be in front of the audience or petrified. And remember, still, the number one fear among adults is public speaking. So you're, uh, to, to circle back on something you said earlier, anxiety is also, was it 40%? Yeah, for anxiety is 50%. 50%. Yeah. Wow. Jeez. You know. So if that's the case, 50% and people have a fear of speaking on top of it. So, right. you know, you're probably crossing the chasm to nearly 100% at that point. Um, maybe that's, maybe we're selecting for people who want to do, to do it at all. Right. Um, or have, have the aptitude plus the desire. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. It's that, it's that desire because I saw a really funny cartoon where they're, you know, talking about like, you know, God making people. It's like, okay, well here we have motivation to be able to, you know, to get you to goals and be like, okay, well, I'm going to scratch out motivation for some people. We're going to make it interest that gets you to the goal. It was like, it's not a motivation, it's an interest. And so a hyper-focus on whatever it is. And like, well, how do we control that? How, what they're interested in? It's like, I don't know. We'll figure it out. Um, and so the, you know, so the, People will have different interests and different goals. And there may be anxiety that choose them not to. And not everyone wants to be like us and love to be in front of a crowd and talk to people and, and share that. But we get our information from all of those people behind us. Absolutely. Who, and we are able to translate that into this thing. And even if I'm the one early in my days would be the one that, you know, they're behind me. It's like, you go talk to them, Rick. And they're pushing me. It's like, you know what to say. Just say what we talked about, you know, because they don't want to be the ones getting in front of it. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough to cut my teeth early on. My mother was that, a self- that can go both ways. You also can be the uh, the person who's getting all the arrows too, <laughs> right? Which is fine. I'm happy to take them, and, you know, because I'm happy to be wrong. Um, and so the um, but so my mother's ran substance abuse treatment facilities for decades, and when I got out of college, I used to 
uh, do sessions for her residents on nutritions for substance abuse recovery, stress management, and assertiveness training. And so I had my, 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 my Beatles in Hamburg kind of story of being like, 60 apathetic people who don't know what want this 22 year old kid wants to talk to him about how to eat right. And so I did that for two years. I can talk to anybody. And so that was how I got really into being able to do presentations and very comfortable in doing that. And very few people have that experience and you have whatever experience you have that made you want to be able to do it and got to be very good at it. But we are the exception. And I thought you were talking about, we thought you were going, my, my, what I kind of describe our industry, you talk about rock stars, is every industry has a pyramid, right? You know, it's like the few people in football or music or whatever that are, in, and, and, you know, or in actors that are like the stars we all know. And then that's a very small part of the top of the pyramid. And then the lots of people who are still waiting tables and may never get that point because mm -hmm. it gets smaller as you go up. Mm -hmm. And that's just the reality of every industry. We can't all be rock stars you know we can't there can't be five hundred thousand, you know bands that all are great mm -hmm. we just don't have the scale for that you know and some people just as humans we're not perfect and some are better than others at it great that's fine let's leverage them for what they're best at and make them successful and make them happy yeah i would say there's there's two other things about rock stars that are a little dangerous one is a lot of them are kind of for lack of a better term a really a one-hit wonder they came up with one thing. It's amazing, and everyone knows them for it. But they're not going to come up with the next thing. That's they're they're done. That's that's well, it. they're farther down the pyramid. They, they, yeah, but they're not the Rolling Stones. They're not U two. They're not. But, but only only slightly because a lot of times they'll they'll play that and they just keep playing the same. It's on repeat and it just keeps happening over and over again, or like a slight derivation thereof. So the, so you end up with a very homogenous sort of. You're not really moving the needle at all. Um, and then the other thing is while they might be coming up with something new, maybe. Um, and in fact, I think a lot of the people, rock stars, they, they do typically it is of the same ilk over and over again. So it's, it's maybe, maybe it is moving the needle, but it's only moving it in one direction. And security, like many industries has many branches and many different things right. you could be doing. Like even like knitting or something. And there's like probably 800 different ways to knit. You know what I mean? But if you always have the same person talking about the cross, you know, hatch knit or whatever, and, that's all they're doing, but new cool ways to do it. You're never exploring all this other stuff. So you're kind of missing out on the rest of what's possible. Yep. Nope. I um, mean, and that's a good example of a hyper-focus on, you know, this particular one, which we may say the same thing about actors or say anything about sports figures or say thing about, you know, people who are knit. I'm sure they're rock stars in the knitting industry oh, too. I'm positive. Yeah. You know, and, but, but I'm just, the pyramid still applies, right. you know, whether or not we feel like who gets to be, what do we categorize people at the top of the pyramid? Mm -hmm. And so, and, and even at the top of the pyramid might be just people who are famous, right? Yeah. That are not necessarily, you know, the best at whatever it is, but they are the most famous at it. And that's one of the challenges that, you know, modern society has is I think the, 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 um, that the, uh, the surveys are like, oh, they want to be famous instead of like, you know, successful or rich or happy or whatever. They want to be famous, which is like, Right. Not a success so, so <laughs> in maybe, my book. So maybe that's the uh, the McAfee of the world, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. The the people who just want to like talk about it. Um, the uh, I thought there was going to be like you know <laughs> Norse is another one that I I always use as example of. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but yeah. So okay, we talked a little bit. We talked a lot about the hiring. I would like to talk a little bit about being hired. So mm -hmm. if someone's listening and they're like, okay, this this is like right up my alley, and like. 
what uh what are some t- tips and track uh tactics or whatever to best position yourself uh to be noticed by employers whether it be resume or in-person interviews or whatever so I think being very direct to the point, I was hoping a friend of mine was updating his resume for a CISO position, actually. And, you know, he's in our generation and he's like, hey, can you give me like a resume? I said, dude, this is like 1990s where you have a thing of that. I said, think of it like an ADHD person reading it. It was like, you need to highlight the, the main things that you main things that you do the best right up front on the top. These three things. And then that and that. So I think it's really just about like formatting to say when, when I was, when, um, when I ran consulting groups, I had somebody kind of ask me, it's like, what are you guys the best in the world at? And I'm like, I love that question. Cause I want to start with that. And that's mm-hmm. what I say all the time. It's like, what are you the best in the world at? And there must be something and it might be a certain needle, needle stitch, whatever, but it's like lead with what that is, because that's the kind of thing that gets you in the door. <clears throat> and then all the other stuff is what's going to impress them in the interview. Cause you need to get a, above that line and get noticed. And so uh, being very, very succinct and just saying that it's like, you know, my superpower is right. Yeah. It was <laughs> like, you know, Hey, I did this one thing. And also like with accomplishments, it was like, you know, yes, you were a pen tester, but like I wrote the exploits for these kind of things that did this thing happen. And I was the one who led the thing to create this stuff. And we found five different zero days and currently doing that. Like, great. Like, I don't care about anything else. That's the main thing I need to know. So distilling it down to thinking about what you need to know. Is that a cover letter or is that like the No, that's in the resume. We don't do cover letters anymore. And, and, you know, it's just kind of like, because there's two things you're trying to get around. One is the algorithm, which is kind of like, oh, do you have all the key words for it if you're in a big company and you're trying to get that? And I'd actually told people that, you know, always say that you're like working on your CISSP just though the words are on there because they don't know what they're looking for. They're just looking for a keyword that you said that as That's an example, interesting. Yeah. you know, um, you know, I, I get cut caught all the time because I had all these clearances and I'm like, you know, here's all the ones that I've had. They're working all expired. On being a cardiologist, by the way. Right. So. Exactly. So, <laughs> and then, you know, but, but that kind of gets you to the point to the person who knows better because so many times that I have my friends who say, Hey, I applied for a position, but I didn't get, you know, they told me I was denied. I'm like, You'd be perfect for it, but there was something that wasn't there that got past that that didn't get past with the filter, whether it was a human filter or some kind of you know OCR filter or something like that. And we all say like, find out who the hiring person is and reach out to them directly with a, you know, it's like, hey, I'm really interested in this position, and then two bullet points about why it's great for it. And they're like, oh, great, I don't know why HR didn't give them to me. Yeah, I'll talk to you, sure. And then you go to them, it's like, oh, give me this resume. I mean, more times out of Tim, you don't get past that first thing. So that's the first step, as you said. And the second step when you get in there is if you are comfortable in doing it, being brutally honest about like, listen, and I came up with this because when I was talking to the class of students, one of the, 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 the people had asked me, like, I was diagnosed and, you know, bless their hearts, you know, half of them who asked questions led with like, hey, I was diagnosed with ADHD or autism or blah, blah, blah. And one was like, hey, I'm both autistic and ADHD. And I'm really worried about getting in the workforce because I'm kind of quirky. I sometimes cut people off and I'm very blunt. And I'm like, great. Welcome to the club. Mm-hmm. It was like, you know, I would lead with that and say, just to let you know, and maybe there's HR people out there. They're saying this now you're protected group and maybe whether you have the patch or not makes your protected group and certain things. But I would just be honest is like, see what your people leader that you're talking to, how they feel about that. And like, if you said to me, it's like, great, welcome to the club. Mm-hmm. You know, but if they say, oh, well, we'll need to work on that. Maybe we can get you that and we're going to need to work on this. Like, okay, then move on. Mm-hmm. 
because you're going to be selecting them as much as they're selecting you yeah, because so you, you want to go into your tribe that they accept you for who you are and not say, that's great, but I'm going to need you to change to work for me. Okay. So you don't think that it's worth even bother trying to train your executive team on, on or whoever's well, your direct manager? In the meantime, yes, we'd love to do that. And it was, and happily, like in my company, you know, I'm, you know, good friends with all of our, uh, all the cybersecurity leadership and, and Alan, our global CISO. And, and we talk about this all the time anyway, even before I was doing this and all of them are very open to it very much. Right. He goes, Oh yeah. And even, um, I was on a podcast with Jim Routh, um, yeah. and, 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 and we brought this topic up after, after we while we're waiting for the upload, you know how that goes. And, <laughs> and he goes, yeah, I always says like, yeah, my people are a little quirky. You just have to deal with it. I'm like, and that's why you were a successful leader. Cause you accept them and let them be who they are. Mm-hmm. And so, um, until we can socialize to this, to everybody, to, they understand this is why people are going to order care or are going to order room service in the best food city in the world. And this is why people are going to cut you off when they have an idea and why they're going to get excited and why they're going to hyper-focus and why they're not going to want to sit in front of people to brief them, you know, and give them some grace for that where you can because the other thing that, that I also get pushed back from my friends, what I love about Charlotte is we're a diverse, you know, set of companies from, you know, Lowe's, Wells Fargo, and, and, um, and, and Bank of America down to, you know, National Gypsum and Haywood, you know, little Bill Heek, and they have five people. I can't have a junior person. They can't have, like, someone coming up. I can't have somebody who can't do all these things. Fine. Then you just realize that you need someone who can talk to the people, write the report and do the whatever, just because you have a too small a group. Mm-hmm. Again, your mileage varies everywhere. I was thinking as you were talking, another thing that popped in my head was you could just ask like, well, okay, if, if, if I'm going to take a job like this, it really needs to be optimized around my skill sets. So who, which teams do you think would be best suited for somebody with my skill sets? And I am hyper performant in these areas. I'm you at know, this time of day. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to have visible tattoos and don't expect me to change my hair. I mean, not like making demands, but like, where are these things that would be more acceptable than not? Yeah. Or, or, you know, I, uh, I really don't like to be talked to when I'm working. Um, I'd like to work when I'm working. And, Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, like a low, um, ambient noise type environment. Can I work from home? Let's say, or, you know, am I allowed to listen to music? Cause I work better when I'm listening to music Yep. or or, or whatever, right? The hundred little things that they might want. If you just say it, uh, say it out loud. Like I, I'm, this is what I'm looking for. It, I have a feeling the HR team would take you a lot more serious. They would go, Oh, okay. Here's, here's the kind of person you are. And, and actually, you know what? You kind of remind me of this other team over here. Like it may, it may not be what you just interviewed for, but actually <laughs> this is, these are the people that are like you, whatever yeah. it might be like audit yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. The other thing, when I talk about traits and helping people motivate, cause that was a whole section of that yeah. is, you know, mirroring is one of them. And I do this with my own sons. It's like, you know, hey, I need to work on this, this paper. Can you come sit with me? And like, I'm not helping them. I'm just sitting next to them and working alongside them to mirror and motivates them. That's why a lot of people can't work from home, but then go to Starbucks and they sit in the Starbucks mirrored with other people who are sitting there like that because they can't self-motivate without anything because then all these distractions happen. It's like, oh, I need to clean this and did that. And did I get that then? Or did I let the dog out or whatever? So those kinds of things. And so talking about the things where you work best and, you know, would I be able to like work in the evening instead of that if I have deadlines and be around people or not being around people or whatever is like trying to be open about it because I think that there is a, you know, we've always kind of accepted that what is required is what is 
mandatory and there's no flexibility in it. And like, oh, you must be this way. You must show up at eight, wear a tie, talk to people, go to lunch with the same the team and do all these things. And we're like, well, I guess I have to change to do that. And, you know, maybe we give ourselves agency to say, well, can I not go with the team because I don't feel comfortable with that? Or can I, you know, come in like in the afternoon and I'll just work till late and I'm working from home most time, but I want to come in in these days. And, and like, what can we negotiate? Because at the end of the day is I want them to be productive and I want them to be successful for themselves and for us as a company. And if I can just make some little tweaks to allow that to happen instead of, and they also will be a lot more loyal and stick around and we have a hard time getting our people poached. So it was like, Hey, well, these folks are letting me be who I am and giving me these accommodations and we're very successful in having it. You know, I'm willing to, you know, pass up a job for more money or more Mm -hmm. title. Mm -hmm. But this does feel like a two way street because if if the person is not self-aware or not self-confident enough to bring these things up, because a lot of people are just like, you know, they'll do whatever in the interview to get that job. You know, it's like, yep. I don't, I'll do whatever to impress. I'm not going to bring up any special accommodations because I don't want to risk. That's an know. excellent point. Um, so it really does feel like it's two-way street where HRs needs to start asking those types of questions. Right. Like, or kind of observing those things or asking us like, you know, how do you feel about this? Or how would you like that? Or do you work better this way or that way? No, that's an excellent point. And again, like my little microcosm, the way that I think is just the, the, you know, kind of how I feel, which is one of the challenges, you know, it's kind of like what is common knowledge to us is why we are the ones speaking in front of the clouds because it's not common knowledge to them. And, you know, I'm thinking of this, but realizing that, well, I would never be in New York for a day without going to all these restaurants or finding things or looking for things to do. And it's hard for me to think about and project how I would behave in that circumstance different. And so, Yes. So that is a gap that I have is that, oh, yeah, that's what I would do. But probably most people wouldn't. Mm -hmm. But at least if we know that that's out there, it's possible. And then maybe like you said, on second side that I might start accommodating and say, hey, why don't we talk about this a little bit? Or would you feel comfortable? This feels like a checklist that just needs to be created. You know, like a we start asking these very specific questions. Like what, what do you like your, about your work environment or which environments have been most successful for you in the past? What, what, what what were they? what were they like? And mm-hmm. you just, and they answer however they're going to answer, but they're like, Oh, I work from home. And that I was got, I was very productive. Oh, why, why was it at home where you're very productive or, Oh, I worked best when I was in a, a team with somebody who was pair programming right. with me or whatever right. random thing in the bullpen, you know, mm-hmm. with all the people around. I remember that was what I loved about the early pin test teams is we were all in cubes and you'd always know something was going on when everyone's crowded around somebody mm-hmm. and you're like, because everyone's ready to jump in and help out. Yeah. And it, and that can vary heavily depending on what your symptoms are or whatever we're talking about. Right. Because you also may not like want to ask for help or be comfortable in asking for help, but you know. And actually, so that seems like there's a follow on questions like there, like not about uh, how much travel's involved in this role, but like, like if you were to go travel uh, for the role, not that that's necessarily a part of it or not, but like, like what, what do you feel like uh, you would like it to be? Do you, you know, are you one of those people who likes to socialize at night or are you one of those people who likes to go home and just kind of relax and be yourself? Because we might, you know, kind of preferentially treat you in a certain way and put you in front of customers if we think you're going to want to stay out all night because that's what customers are going to want to do. Or, you know, if you're just going to like get in and get out, you know, just get the job done. Great. Well, we'll probably pair you with somebody who's more that right, sociable exactly. type who can go <clears throat> handle the customer, you know? Um, yeah. Cause I've been with people like, Hey, I'm going to be in bed by eight o'clock. Mm-hmm. I'm like, cool. So, we go to dinner. And it's like, all right, I'm going to my room. I'm like, fair enough. 
Yeah. You know, and I'm going to, you know, but they get up at like four in the morning and they're productive. They knew that they were productive from like four to eight before we go into the office and they get everything done mm -hmm. they need to do. Um, you know, and, and I don't know how much of this, like the HR people may be listening. It's like, oh my gosh, we can't ask that or that's too personal or whatever. And certainly in other countries, you can't ask that kind right. of thing. But we're pragmatic and we're problem solvers because that's how we're like, well, yeah. it needs to be something like this and somebody else figure out how to make this happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Uh, but I think there is a way to do it that is HR appropriate. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, so maybe I'm not wordsmithing it quite right, but you know, this is first iteration. It's the rough draft. Yeah. <laughs> so I went... And uh, I found sort of a list of things that um, I'd like to talk through with you just to make sure that I, I think you may, I think you would probably agree with all of this, but um, on the array of attributes that would uh, project that this person is likely neurodivergent. Okay. Uh, so fixations, mm -hmm. abnormal or flat speech. Um, Could be. Yep. Noise, noise sensitivity. Yeah, that's a, that's a big one. Um, I'll be curious to hear more about that one. Um, social difficulty. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what we've just been talking about. Anxiety, as you said, 50%. Abnormal posture, which, yes. I, had, which I had not heard that one, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, I can explain that. Yep. Uh, poor eye contact, which yep. you talked about at the beginning. Ticks and fidgets. Yep. Stimming. Um, so talk about that too. Aggression and depression. Right. And so those are like the executive function of, um, because the, the um, managing of emotions includes like, you know, the procrastination thing of like, I don't know how to get started to do this is also like, I don't know how to regulate my emotion. That's an executive function issue as well. Um, the other thing that, that should be on the list that I would add to the list is time myopia. Myopia. Right? Anyway, you know, time blindness sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, there's like, you think it's going to be a lot longer or a lot shorter. There are some people who are like, oh, I can't do that because I got to do this today. I'm like, yeah, but that's going to take you 45 minutes. But it's going to, they're going to be anxious up until the time they do that 45 minute thing and they don't want to be distracted for it. Or they mm -hmm. think it's going to be, it's like, oh, I'll just do this in five minutes. Like, yeah, this is a three hour thing. So the understanding of kind of like how long it's going to take. And I think that's the one thing that as I've mentored people about time management, and I'm very good at getting a lot of stuff done in a short amount of time and is, is like, it's understanding, okay, these are the five things I need to do. And yes, it's the Franklin Covey, you know, prioritization and time and importance kind of thing. But it's like, this is going to take me five minutes. It's going to take me 10 minutes. It's going to be take me two days or whatever. Once you know what those are, and sometimes I'd start a task to get to a point where I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm an hour and I'll be finishing it. Now I'll put it aside. And I know what the time is on that is, is one of the things that for me being productive is knowing how much time and, and then going back to the like, I work well with that, you know, people work well with deadlines because that's the hyper focus that I need to be able to do something, you know, when you know the time better, then you can get it done sooner. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the fixations, I think we kind of understand that one, the flat speech, you didn't seem to like that one. Why is that? Well, I think it's, there's on the autism side, there might be the flat affect, mm -hmm. which is kind of, you know, as in psychology that my mother used to talk about that, which is just someone is like from a emotion, it's maybe a emotional regulation thing where they're just kind of like very monotone and very flat. Um, and that may be like the exception and not the rule. You know, like when we said before about, you know, we think of autistic people as being non-social and all this thing. It's like, yes, that is percentage, but that's a small percentage of this much bigger one. So yeah, I would I kind see. of put that in a smaller percentage. Okay. So noise sensitivity. Yeah. Um, that one seems pretty common. Um, yes. Overstimulation is a common thing. And while you sometimes see autistic kids wearing headphones to block out noise mm -hmm. because they can't focus because 
you know, think about, you know, all these neural connections that are going on in their brain and their eyes are like stuck open, their ears are wide open and they're just like, I can't focus because all this stuff is going on and I'm trying to process all of it. Yeah. Or the opposite where I need to have, like you kind of said, I work better with music because I need to have kind of like the Adderall thing, something to occupy the parts of my brain so I could focus the other parts of the brain on something else. Interesting. Um, so abnormal posture, that was mm -hmm. another one you yep. picked so up on. I'll turn to kind of demonstrate it. So the, oh, well, I can still do it. It's about the neck flung forward. So that kind of thing is that there is a, a tilting of the neck forward that they had kind of found a pattern of people that were autistic kind of had their neck forward instead of like up and straight. And I don't know why, I don't know how, but that was like, you'll see that pattern a lot in, um, and the way people uh, just kind of is how it, they is stand. It, is it a growth issue? Is it how their bones grew or is it I don't, literally born like that? Yeah, no, I don't know. And, and it's not that they can't, that, that one cannot stand up straight. It's just like, the, you know, it's just the way that instead of like feeling like you're completely erect and your shoulders are on top of being the yoga teacher, your shoulders are on top of your hips, on top of your feet, you know, it's kind of like your shoulders are kind of slouch, your head's a little forward. Um, I think you just described every teenager. Yeah. And so, <laughs> and, and that one may not be like, and that, that may anecdotal science to uh -huh, it, uh -huh. that it is to it. But yes, that is something that's usually attributed. Interesting. I but I'm not going to point somebody out and say, oh, you're neurodivergent because you walk this way. Yeah. I'd be curious to know if that's uh, something you could actually test for, like uh, through like a DEXA scan or something, you know, like d different muscles see if it was something, but I, I suspect the age of cell phones have completely ruined that as right. a, <laughs> Oh, absolutely. As yeah, for my yoga classes, that's where I work on a lot is like opening up the shoulders, getting the neck up, doing exercises to get it up and then opening up the hip flexors. Cause we sit all day. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we sure do. Yeah. That for me, that's the worst. Um, okay. I think we covered that one off. Um, another thing that, um, uh, we we're talking about, I think a little bit earlier was the difference between somebody who may have had trauma, childhood trauma versus somebody who has ADHD. But uh, one of the other symptoms around ADHD is they tend to oftentimes be very loud. Yes. Um, which seems like that would be um, the hypersocial type, right? That would be the, the type that might go into sales, for instance. Um, Not necessarily, because you could say someone who like doesn't talk a lot, but when they talk, they all like start yelling when they talk because they're very excitable. Uh -huh. You know, uh -huh. I think it's just the... And that goes to the regulation, you know, the front, you know, the executive function of modulating certain things. And it may be also related to the, uh, the, the hearing and the noise thing. So maybe everything is loud to them all the time. And so when they talk, they're talking too loud. Mm -hmm. So it may be just as simple as that. I see. And I don't think that it's a, you know, I know that I talk loud a lot. I get excited. I start increasing my volume as I start getting excited and I start talking faster, but I think it's, it's a range. Mm, interesting. So the childhood trauma thing, if if that is the case, how do you differentiate? Is that is that truly just a matter of uh, sort of a negative diagnosis through uh, drug therapy, and if you just don't react to the right no, drugs? It, and no, there there are tests. There's a test called ACES, A E C A A A E C A E C S, um, that like ask questions about this, which are just basic questions like. Have you ever been hit as a kid? Have you been neglected? Have you felt your needs weren't that? Have you felt that you were, you know, blah, 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 you know, these kind of things. And, and it, because it may not be physical, it may not be, you know, it, it may be emotional trauma. It may be, you know, lack of thing. It may be something that happened in teenage years, but really the, the, the output of that is heavy masking. 
Mm. And so masking, which is usually a trait of neurodivergency to feel like you fit in because you're either too loud or too soft or too excited or not excitable enough or whatever. It's like, well, who invented normal? You know, who said that what was normal? And so you then like, okay, well, I'm going to mask and be normal so I don't stick out with people. Would be the same thing that someone who was like, I'm dealing with a whole bunch of stuff and I'm just faking it to be happy or this or that. Um, and then there's heavy, heavy masking. And then, like I said, thing about people pleasing because it's like, oh, I need to fit in. So I need to be very people pleasing and I'm going to give up myself more because people seem to like that and I want to be liked. And I may hyper focus on something or be very OCD and very controlling because I have no control over anything else. So I'm going to overcompensate by making sure that everything is meticulous and in a certain place. So it seems like the common thread there is anxiety, like a massive amount of anxiety. Yes. <clears throat> Yeah, I could probably see that. Again, I'm not a psychologist, but yes, you know, using our pattern matching brains of like, yes, I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. That is kind of like it's a manifestation of anxiety and like, how did you get it? Mm -hmm. Which is why I just kind of focus on the traits. Yeah, so so to that point, if you have some, <laughs> to me, it feels like that's almost a distinction without a difference in some ways, because what you're really dealing with is somebody with the exact same traits, doesn't matter how they got there, right? They could have got there through you know, some physical injury, let's say, right. who yeah. cares? Yep. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't matter. They Afraid have dogs. Yeah. Right. Whatever, whatever it is that got them to the point where they're having this social anxiety issues or having, um, inabilities to regulate themselves or whatever, or prefer very specific ways of working and not other ways of working. Who cares how we got there? It really seems like it's, I mean, unless you're talking about drugs or something and then it might right. matter a lot, but. Oh, which is a good point I'll bring up. Oh, yeah. Um, but it seems like what I'm really, what we're really more caring about is how do we integrate them into their, into a work function where they're, uh, can be successful and, uh, yes. make, and be profitable. And, and, and maybe it's because, and again, I'm very biased in this as I've kind of talked about. And like, if you show up on my team and I want us to be successful and work cohesively, I don't care how you got here and I'm going to focus on your traits mm -hmm. and I will empathize with however you got here. But I understand that that also doesn't scale is not repeatable and probably don't work. And you may want to be overcome, you know, if someone and, and, and often in both cases, they may come in, as you kind of pointed out without awareness, I'm this way because I had childhood trauma and I did not know that I thought I had a fine childhood. And so I talked to people like, Oh, it's not normal to be locked out of the house and bubble. If you do something wrong or something normal than that, or, Oh, I Wait, didn't realize isn't. that there were people who were just so, <laughs> so, it, and that's why I, when I first started talking about this, I was overcompensating to like, I'm not diagnosing you. I'm not telling you because I don't want you to like, I'm just showing you some traits. And, and, you know, maybe as we evolve, this becomes more normalized and people are, and I will say that are, are my kids generation and, and Gen Z's are much open, more open about mental health and emotional health and talking about these things, which I think is great because our generation absolutely was not. Yeah. We did not mention this. We didn't say that. We, you know, you only went to a therapist when you're crazy and not like, hey, this is a healthy thing. Just like going to the gym, you really need to have, you know, someone you can talk to. Interesting. Um, what are the percentage rates, uh, do we think, um, of people who are neurodivergent or have sort of the emerging properties that we're discussing? So I had looked into, you know, the, I have some statistics that I, that I got and there's a world statistic and I want to say it's like 8.1, the U S statistic, I'll just use U S statistic, the U S numbers. Okay. I think it's 8.1 for ADHD and like 2.6% for percent for autism. Um, if I'm remembering that right, or there's someone in that round, which immediately is like, yeah, that seems low, you know, cause everyone we know is. And so I say, I say that I'm like, yeah, that seems low. Cause everyone we know is right. You know, but then I looked at 
if we look, if we accept that there's 1.2 million cybersecurity professionals in the US, that's 0.35%. And that easily fits into either of those numbers completely fine. Mm-hmm. You know, I, mean, I think they're low because A, people are not diagnosed properly, and B, they may be misdiagnosed, and C, they may be both, which is not even a legal diagnosis. So, you know, but I think the general rule among other sources that I had looked at was like 15 to 20% of the population. But that's also the whole wow. wheel of, you know, that includes dyslexia and OCD and other stuff mm-hmm. as well. So, um, which I would probably agree with. Because when I was I looking mean, at the T, I mean, should we be counting? I mean, dyslexia is obviously a, well, a, a pretty bad thing, and for certain job functions, uh, if you want to be an editor, not a great uh, right. But I'm going to just talk about you know, error in the neurodivergent wheel. Uh-huh, you uh-huh. know, yes, and and as you kind of said, the um, you know many people have multiple. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I have some people I used to work with um, very often say it's like like they'll hand me a document and it just comes back like full of red lines. Like I find like every weird little thing mm-hmm. and it's just like, I obviously pay a lot of attention when I'm reading because that's the only way I can read. I, I can't read mm-hmm. the other way. I have to look at every word and every, you know, try to like analyze it. It takes me maybe four or five tries to get a single word. Sometimes I'm like, what is that word? I'm looking right at it. I walked by a sign the other day and I was absolutely convinced it was in French. I'm like, Oh, that's weird that there's this sign in French in Austin. Like why, why would they do that? That seems odd, but and I was looking at every word. I'm like, oh, wait, that's actually an English word. Well, they must have used like an English word in the middle of that French sentence. And <laughs> it took me like, I'm not exaggerating, probably 10 seconds to realize it was actually all in English. I just couldn't, I just couldn't read it. Um, mm-hmm. So clearly not great if I'm going to have to read for a living. That would not be a wonderful uh, right. attribute of somebody who had to do that. But um, I'm but not you sure. have other superpowers, so I'm not going to make you be the one, right. you know, reading from a teleprompter right. to be able to do stuff. Right. No problem. Right, right. Um, I'm actually just finishing a book now and, and I was talking with somebody like, Oh, you're going to, uh, do the, uh, the voiceover for it, for the audible. And I'm like, that means I'd have to read it. Uh, I mean, I wrote it, but I don't know if I could read it. Uh, that's a whole other skill that I don't have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it might take me a lot of tries to do it. I mean, it'd be fun to try just to see how long, how many takes it took me to do it, you know, like start a timer and see how long compared to the end. Right. Like how much extra time did it take me to edit this thing? Um, but also I wouldn't put myself in, well, I wouldn't normally classify myself as any sort of handicapped at all in any way in a job function. Like if you're like, could you do this job? Yeah, I could do that job. I mean, I may not be as good at somebody as somebody else at that job, whatever job we're talking about. I'm pretty sure I could do that job. If you want to put me in legal, fine. I could probably work my way through it. If you oh, want yeah, to put absolutely. me in sales, I could, I know I could do sales. Yeah, you know, absolutely. But if, you know, but deep, we're not perfect at everything. Deep you know. No, no, no. Yeah. I'm, sh- I'm sure there's other people who are much better at me uh, than me in a lot of the things. But if I were to say, uh, am I a neurodivergent? I would say no. I like I'm I'm a normal person in many ways. I would be able to function in just about any any place you put me. So I'm curious to uh, if you took that fifteen to twenty percent and then you took it down to what you think would be the kind of person with whom you're going to have to make accommodations. Because I think that's really the the more important in in terms of training HR in terms of you know. Ha- asking better questions of your hiring manager to make sure that you're being situated in right. a good position. And, and it would be higher in like our industry, for instance, yeah, for, oh, for sure. reasons. Yeah. But I think the, the exercise you just kind of went through 
kind of is why we need to talk about this more because I think there are people who don't want to be classified at that because we're still hanging on to stigmas from our childhood or other things or don't feel like that they want to have the patch for it. And, you know, it's like, oh, well, then, and, and so I think that normalizing it, that this is, you know, I think that in 20 years as we kind of consolidated things like ASC, we, you know, was, you know, we had autism, we had Asperger's, we had these things, and now we just kind of like put it all together. Mm -hmm. You know, ADHD, I think we may start kind of merging these. I think some of these will merge to say, all right, these are not separate things because there's so many things now that we're really studying it in a variety of people and a bigger sample size. We're finding that all of this are kind of what is normal, Mm. you know, what is not normal. And so I think that's what we're really talking about is, you know, what is normal and, you know, who do we point to and say, this is a normal neurotypical person. And I think we'd be hard pressed to go find that example. And so we are all variations of something. And so what are those things that I can call our gifts or our superpowers that we're really, really good at because we're not all perfect everything. Right. And so I don't look at it as like a, um, you know, a, a handicap as, as like, oh, because I'm not great at, at this, you know, I'm not great at math, you know, but I'm really good at articulating things. I'm good at pattern matching and do all the stuff that looks like math, but not like solving the problem a la Google hunting. Right. You know, and so, but that's not a deficiency that is like, well, what are my specialties and what I'm good at and talking about this more help normalize and people feel comfortable with that mm-hmm. and talk about, but so, so to answer your question as I kind of get back around to yeah. it, which is Those the big parentheses yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as we get to the, um, the, uh, you know, the number is, yeah, I mean, obviously certain types of roles will have more people that have these special gifts for pattern matching and things like that because of what they are. And, but I think that there's also others that um, are, you know, probably doing things that don't realize they're this way, but they're doing a mundane job because they don't know any better and they're perfectly contempt and they don't know that they have these gifts or they may be like great at video games and understanding these things and getting this stuff, but I'm just driving a truck every day. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you have so much more, but you don't know it. And those are the people that I want to try to get to because they would be great for our industry, but they don't know it. One of my friends who's the CISO at Contour Brands, John, he says he kind of instinctually interviews people like he's at a waiter or a bartender because, you know, people who are in food service industry are very much like the chaotic parts that I mentioned, you know, that thrive under pressure and that kind of thing. And he goes, you know, hey, have you thought about this? What do you think of that? I even had just recently one of my call center folks reached out to me and said, hey, you know, I kind of saw this thing when I'm like helping people out and like, I'm saying, hey, that's interesting that you've noticed that. Have you thought about security? And like, you know, maybe let me talk you to our threat intel team because you're really good at identifying these things and you're sitting in a call center because you don't know any better. Mm-hmm. All right. So I've been kind of excited to talk about this particular topic with you, um, AI and neuro- neurodivergency. I think there's several interesting things that can be done here. One is remember that pen test report that obviously you're never going to have them right because it's just not going to turn out right. What if it could very easily be rewritten um, from a very pragmatic, very um, unemotional, maybe uh, fully autistic version of a human being and translated through a little bit of AI and say, hey, make this more personable. Um, make make this email seem like I'm a like a 
you know, happy go lucky Southern California boy. You know, yeah, it's all about the prompts you put in. You right. put in that prompt, right? And you right. say, yeah, exactly. It's like, hey, do it, and I want to have it like a yeah. What what a Midwestern a, a happy mid a, a friend overly friendly Midwesterner would do. Right. Yeah. With, like, with like, you know the emojis and the whole why thing. Not? Yeah. I mean, why not? And so this seems like there could be an interesting gap uh, that could be easily filled with AI, easily filled. And so you, you're maybe not going to go and uh, speak in public, which you didn't want to do anyway. You know, chances are because the anxiety issue we were just talking about. Um, but maybe getting emails to customers or to partners or vendors or whoever you have to deal with all day and making them feel like, oh, that person's like really easy to work with. I mean, I think there could be something yeah, it's like really a little, powerful there. A little tool, an assistant. Mm-hmm. And, and it's kind of like just like having an editor <clears throat> and, you know, but understands you and you kind of feed the model and it understands different things because really it's just getting that 80%. Because most people, you know, being a writer, I was really successful in helping people because I'm good at starting from a blank piece of paper, which most people are not. Most people, if I were like, here, I'm going to write you a paragraph and give it to you and you can edit it and then make it what you want. But if I said, write me a paragraph, it'll take you two hours and you'll think about it and you'll do 15 different versions before you get it done. We need to just go. Mm-hmm. So the, um, what I am, so I think that kind of thing of being able to say, all right, well, I have a hard time with, um, you know, writing something down. So what I'm going to do is, um, I don't know how you input it, you know, whether or not you just describe the thing. Yeah. The, the inputs, the hard part is like, what's the, what is the data set that the model is going to read to be able to turn that into? Right. So, I mean, if, if they, if they've produced, you know, a report and the report is very dry and hard to parse and, you know, very, very manufactured, uh, matter of fact, you could easily just say, Hey, please rewrite this to make be more friendly. But, you know, being the, the editor of those reports for decades, I was like, there's also probably stuff that's missing in it yeah, that sure. they didn't tell me that they should have because they didn't know it was relevant. Mm-hmm. And I would need to like get them out of them. I had a, I had a guy even just, you know, five years ago, one of my virtual CISOs who was the most articulate guy verbally and spoke multiple languages but the reports were just very bare bones because he hate the act of pressing on the keys to type something in Mm -hmm. and so i'm like okay dude i'm just gonna have one of my analysts sit with you and just interview you and they're gonna type it all out and they're gonna like the very passionate and descriptive thing that you're gonna say they're gonna write it out and then they'll give it to you and then you can edit it But see this is all solvable because you could actually just create those 10 questions let's say or have it ask you like please ask me 10 questions about this and this about this very specific thing it'll ask you the questions you input the answers and boom it could produce nearly everything we're talking about that's a good point uh i mean you're right Obviously, it takes one person somewhere being creative. Like one person has to like go. Okay, I, here's how to get a good report. Right. right. Well, it's creating that expert system. Yeah. The, 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 the first <laughs> that time. feeds the AI. The, the, first, the first time, but really, honestly, that these days is getting much much easier. Yeah. And if you have the questions ahead of time, and you know that this is what you're trying to get to, and you have the report sitting there that is already all the factual data, you marry all this stuff up with a little bit of AI magic and. <coughs> I think LLM could produce significant amounts of your report and and bridge that gap. I agree. Um, I would just, you know, again, me being the over-perfectionist in this sense of, you know, consulting reports of like, there's a lot of variables. And I was like, what I complain about some of the bigger consulting shops says they put together some, you know, 
scalable, repeatable checklist that a bunch of people just go in and follow. Mm -hmm. And it's very dry and impersonal and not understanding the nuances of certain things or asking the right questions or following on with questions like, okay, you gave me the answer, but I think there's something more to that, or you're not really doing it to the right way. Mm -hmm. And that, um, you know, again, getting it to 80% to get it to a reviewer, saving some time. I mean, there's no question that there is a efficiency and time savings in doing this. I mean, one of the things that the contracting legal teams are doing now is just, hey, give me all the, you know, all, all, all the uh, requirements or the SLAs in this 50 page report. And this are the pages where it is. And this is what it is. So I just saved myself, you know, an hour going through it and marking that it marked it all for me. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. Right. Or just the emails. Right. I remember my uh, my former business partner used to send these like one or two word emails. I'm like, dude, what is up with this? Like it's the answer isn't yes. It just right. it isn't. <laughs> yeah. We all have those people who, yeah, they're leaders who just like two word replies. Like yeah. very. But it's really easy to find the business email compromise. Like, yeah, she would never write that much. Right. 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 <laughs> but 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 all he in today's world, it's too bad this is years and years ago, just cut and paste the previous email and say the answer is yes. Now, please make a paragraph uh, explaining yes with the normal pleasantries and so on. Like, yes, and. Yeah, yeah, it's like, oh, thanks so much for your email, blah, 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 blah. You know, and that's like two or three sentences of you like congratulating them on sending you an email. And then like, yeah, I, I thought hard about this. The answer is yes. Uh, please let me know if you have any more questions. Blah, blah, blah. Like three sentences afterwards, like uh, you can reach me at some, such and such. Blah, blah, blah. Like that would have been so much more palatable to the customers. And yet I got these one or two word answers out of them like 90% of the time. Right. Yeah. And that's probably a neurodivergent person who was just like, I'm giving you the facts. Mm -hmm. It's like, why do you need? And, and that was one of the things that I appreciate about the big bang theory is it really kind of helped normalize. Yeah. And these things like there was that sameness, there was that pattern, there's a sit in the same place. There's a like, wait, that's not logical. You know, all of these things, it really kind of showed that this is a real way of behaving and, you know, and they were very successful in being able to manage it because they could hyper-focus on the things that made them successful mm -hmm. in their superpower. That's right. All right. Well, how do people get in touch with you and find out more information about this? It sounds like something you're going to keep working on. Yeah, I love talking about this. And um, yeah, thank you very much. The uh, I am like the most accessible person. If you just Google Rick Doten and you're going to find me all over the place, you know, I've, um, I'm, I'm obviously on LinkedIn. I have a YouTube channel, uh, Rick cybersecurity videos, where I, You know, I was, I'm also on the editorial panel for the CIS critical security controls. And so when we changed from version seven to version eight, we did so many changes. I felt bad. So I said, okay, I'm going to do a video for each of the 18 new controls. Why we changed from one to the other, you know, kind of like a, a federalist papers. Like this is how we got to here. <laughs> if you want to know why we got rid of three and we added one, that's why there's 18. Um, and so the, uh, so yeah, so I have videos and I have those and I will post like other things that I do on there occasionally, I probably should do more. I have a governance talk that I need to get up there that I need to record. But but yeah, so anyway, so I have a YouTube channel and then uh, mostly on LinkedIn and then just like you will just, yeah, Google my name and you'll find all kinds of stuff. I talk at lots of conferences. I'm on podcasts. I'm way too overexposed. <laughs> well, they put you out in front and center, right? Yep, that's, that, that was all that. Yeah, so I'm the face guy. So that's fine. Happy, happy to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for coming on. I really yeah, appreciate my this. My pleasure. Thank you so much for yeah. having me. Yeah, absolutely.